I want to thank everyone else for coming back to the second episode of the Authority Report. Um, I know we want to kind of keep the momentum from last episode, so I wanted to offer anyone some time at the beginning of the episode to air any lingering thoughts about last episode. I know that some of you probably thought about it a little bit longer. Hmm. In any case, <laughs> uh, all right. So we wanted to get a little bit more uh, current events this episode. Obviously, last last episode we talked a lot about the theory of um, regulation, the industry's involvement, the FDA's involvement in regulating and enforcing the regulations. But uh, coming into this episode, uh, so everyone knows, I want to give credit where it's due. Joey had a uh, day where he wrote down a lot of current events that are happening. We sent us a pretty cool list of stuff. Um, and we're going to kind of take it in a little bit more of a literal literal sense, which are you talking about uh, current events, but uh, one that really popped out to us in regards to that regulation talk last uh, episode was about illegal stimulants. And Tim aired a really interesting question this week that I wanted to pose to you guys and let you guys just go down deep because the three of you work with very different uh, brands. And so you might have different responses to this question. Tim asked, uh, why don't brands use DMHA? And in this case, you could sub that in with Araya or a lot of other gray area stuff, but specifically DMHA is just a good example here. Why don't you use DMHA and what's the time frame of enforcement? Are there certain gates that, that you know keep you from going further or where you have to start worrying? I know Kenton has worked with GNC in the past and bodybuilding and stuff like that. And those distributors, we've already talked about how they kind of self-regulate for us. But in the case where you're building a brand that is all direct to consumer and international, what are the reasons that you do or don't use this? And what would it look like in terms of the uh, landscape of issues you've run into? And can I like disclaim that too? Yes. Please. I think this, it, we just covered this in the, in the pre footage, but this is a question that really confuses lay consumers to set the table for them because it's like we said with like um, two things can be true at the same time and they're seemingly at odds with one another. Like DMHA is cool. Uh, many people enjoy it. It's an ingredient worth your, you know, review or whatever, but also brands will not, will go out of their way to avoid it for reasons that they're going to discuss. Um, and they will also sort of like impugn those that do use it as not playing by the same rule book, which is, you know, literally true as well. So I'm asking that question from the, the perspective of a lay consumer that can't understand why this marketplace gets so confusing about this because they're like, Hey, some people seem to seem like this. Um, they recommend it to me. Other people tell me that not only should I not use that, but it could be dangerous or misleading or not compliant. So, um, you know, and, and then I think to maybe tie to those current events that Joey had it, a lot of those current events, by the way, for those listening that aren't, you know, we haven't covered them yet. They're about enforcement of infractions, different ingredients, different things like that. So it's like, when does the first, um, obstacle appear if all five of us didn't have any sort of repute or whatever, we're trying to break in the industry and we're like, hey, let's just make this DMHA pre-workout. Like when do the, the roadblocks appear? How stiff are the penalties? Do they, do they uh, you know, increase in size over time? Is it a right away thing? Is it something that two years later? You know, so now that I've set the table, hopefully they all have a lot to say about that because I'm the one who I've never actually put that into play. I'll start from a very topical view, if, if that's cool, guys. Yeah. Um, before we even get into the weeds and sometimes the things that are like, you know, the very, very, very deep in the fringe, like the DMEA, DMHA, the exotic illegal stimulants from the old cookbooks that aren't really new at all. They're just being repurposed and kind of brought forth. 
Um, it can also get confusing just from a formulation standpoint from a brand side, what may or may not be legal and also depending on what the risk of the individual company is. For example, at a former brand of mine, they were very kind of in the spotlight because of past issues with picotropin, things that weren't necessarily wrong. But then again, once you kind of get put in that spotlight, you're amplified. So by the legal team that governed over that company, certain things, even though they weren't inherently bad, we could not use. Like a good example of that one, we actually had a huge issue of prosups with dynamine, for example, when it was in the first launch stages, people said, oh, well, is it legal? Is it not? Well, well it was perfectly fine. However, just for GNC specifically at that time, their regulatory team did not like it, did not allow it. It also gets a little confusing to people, things like that could be internationally different, like Yohimbi is a very hot button one for a lot of people. And that's not even talking about the actual things that you're alluding to, the DMHA, DMEA. So from a consumer standpoint, I can see where people get confused. I'm like, what is you know, on the illegal side, gray area versus like what's kind of frowned upon. Even people like steering away from products these days because of Prop 65 warnings I've seen, like, oh, this product causes cancer. And then they have to explain that to them. So to your point, Tim, it's confusing from a consumer standpoint, exactly in the layman's terms, what can be illegal versus not illegal. Now, when it comes down to specifically with things like DMA, DMHA, that goes to the long-standing argument you always are hearing, like whether it is naturally occurring. And then the next step beyond that, well, okay, is it feasibly and financially feasible, uh, possible to extract that specific ingredient at an efficient rate where therefore it would in fact be found in nature to be used in that product that is allowed by those regulations or is it the synthetic version? That's kind of setting the table where you're coming from and in terms of what to use or not to use. Personally, from a sourcing standpoint, even things like Ariadurensis, which aren't even like quote unquote that bad, they can get very iffy in terms of supply chain at times. And then you run into the potential risk, which is why you have to test everything. You have, you know, some of these overseas suppliers that are shady as hell. Like, yeah, we have it. They'll ship it, but then they may spike it with something that's not really your address. It's another form of stimulant that's cheap. They may have some old DMHA, DMA sitting around like, yeah, hey, we'll get rid of this. Let's, let's make the product no good. You know, I've seen some shady, shady shit from suppliers speaking of that specific topic. Wasn't there like a crackdown at one of the supply sides because uh, yeah. that was like exactly that, right? Exactly. They actually waited for all the, uh, some of the visiting uh, uh, delegates to come in and they came in and had a little raid and they picked off a bunch of people at supply side. Yeah, that, that had happened. So cool. this, this is my perspective. This is what's frustrating in our industry. <clears throat> we are, I think we talked about this before, but the way in which we use grammar, I think is, epistemically leaky or in other words we don't have really precise definitions of the terms that are pertinent to our space so for example you'll often hear people say that 1,3-dimethylamylamine is banned 1,3-dimethylamylamine is not banned the food and drug act uh, food drug and cosmetic act does not capacitate the fda with the ability to pre-designate things as banned that's actually not the fda's responsibility despite the fact that they have a significant amount of leeway, according to something I think I referenced last time, which is called Chevron deference, which is the Supreme Court's, generally speaking, jurisprudential deference to regulatory agencies to interpret their rules. Congress bans things. So, for example, the designer steroid, I think it's, the, what is it, the designer steroid or designer anabolic steroid? Asco. Yeah. Yeah. That designated or enumerated a list of compounds which are banned. Those are officially banned. Took it out, essentially outside the FDA's purview, right? 1,3-dimethylamylamine, hygienamine, et cetera, are on the FDA's advisory list. And if you ever take the time to look at the FDA's website for the advisory list, they will specifically designate that these ingredients 
have not been demarcated as non-dietary ingredients. They say the FDA has made a almost prophylactic disposition that these may not be dietary ingredients. Now the issue is to your point, Tim, that pre-designation, which is not codified, it's not in the law anywhere. They haven't even made a disposition that these are not 201 Gs. They haven't made a definition that the company failed to issue a 413, a new dietary ingredient. They're not saying they have done any of those things. It's just the FDA making this preemptive pre-designation that these may not conform to the law. And that in and of itself is sufficient to scare most ingredient suppliers from taking in the ingredients from China, which 99.99% of all 1,3-dimethylamylamine is Chinese. So then the ingredient suppliers refuse to buy it. The ingredient suppliers or brokers refuse to tender it to contract manufacturers. The contract manufacturers refuse to put it in supplements for brands if they are reputable. But again, because it's not an actual codification or designation, and if you have a sufficient amount of capital lying around, and if you think wasting that capital is a low enough opportunity cost where you want to insert that ingredient, you may put it in there. And the FDA couldn't definitionally say that that product was misbranded or adulterated until we push them to make that actual designation. So it's essentially playing the legal lottery. It corresponds roughly to Ben's post about trade dress earlier. You can have IP all you want, but there's still an opportunity cost associated with enforcing that IP. These ingredients are not illegal. They're not banned. That's the incorrect nomenclature, but you have to determine whether or not those resources you would spend proving that to the FDA are better spent elsewhere. Yeah, I think like there's, to your point about lazy language, it's on all sides, right? Because like the brands that are, I don't want to say they're like virtue signaling, but they'll say like, oh, well, we could make a pre-workout like that too, but we don't want to be criminals. It's like yeah. by the letter of the law, they're not criminals. They're just, you know, choosing to roll the, so like that goes on both other brands will sort of like uh, shun people that, you know, and it's a calculated risk, like you said, but um, that was my impression too. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong, is that this is sort of the conversation I wanted to have. So I'm glad it's going this direction is like, oftentimes it's easier to import said thing than it is to get a manufacturer to then take it into their facility to want to manufacture it. Mm -hmm. You know, cause people have told me there are plenty of Chinese companies hawking raws that are on that list or, or worse, but, but then once you then try to engage a manufacturer, they're going to say, no, we can't touch that. Yeah, so you can get it. It's that, but then getting it into the product is, is, and that was sort of always my issue with like, you know, I, I, we mentioned this last time, so I'll be brief and we don't want to necessarily go here, but uh, I, I feel a lot of questions about SARMs as someone who faces consumers and I'm telling them like, by definition, any manufacturer willing to touch, this is like radioactive, this isn't DMHA. So then that causes me to um, doubt the, the repute of the entire operation that's willing to handle those raws, you know, uh, worse. I mean, so so to Drew's point, there, there's sort of like a, a, a gradation. There's like SARMs and, and you know, other obviously uh, illicit things, and then more gray area, often stimulants that haven't been explicitly banned. Mm -hmm. We lost Joe and he's back. You're muted. I'm man. back. I'm on a different camera that my computer doesn't like Zoom. So dramatic. I like, <laughs> I like the old one better. <laughs> Well, I was going to ask Joey if maybe he could frame it from the side of a manufacturer. You know, I mean. Well, I mean, if you're smart about it, you want to stay as far away from these things as possible. 
I mean, if, if you have these things like in your warehouse and the FDA does an inspection, like that's probably going to be one of the first things that they're looking for if it's a criminal kind of thing and not a not a regulatory kind of thing. So, you know, they're they're going to look for that kind of stuff. They're going to look for the SARMs. They're going to look for the DMAA. And most of them, if they're coming in like that, they're going to assume that you got it from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, you're kind of guilty until proven innocent. And they go through your, like your whole warehouse and they don't find anything. So, you know, that is something that does happen. Um, but the other thing is, you know, granted, they'll find it. And then, you know, if they do find it, then you're, you're stuck with getting a lot of stuff seized, your whole operation gets shut down. And suddenly there's an investigation going on and you cannot operate whatsoever. So let me ask you a question. It might not be fair to ask, but if you guys will weigh in on it, uh, it would show a lot. If you were prospecting a contract manufacturer for your own brand and you had skin in the game and you needed to make sure everything was going to be okay, if that brand was using DMHA, would you question the rest of the quality that they would be able to produce for you? Yes. Uh, Well, I would, but I would subject them to a robust and systematic compliance audit, which would discover any non-conformances anyway. So that wouldn't be that specific ingredient would not be a watershed moment for me. I think specifically because I have a more esoteric view of what constitutes banned in this space. Yeah. I I would say though, to Joey's and Drew's probabilistic points, I know where Drew's going and Tim, the contract manufacturer who trades in that sort of ingredient and people who do not conform to the GMPs, that Venn diagram is probably just a circle. So that (laughs) the, the likelihood of, somebody using that ingredient and then passing a robust and systematic supplier audit is unlikely, but- And if they do, they're very dangerous. Exactly. (laughs) Charitas Paribus, I would, provided they passed everything else. That was what, uh, so that that connection of people who are doing that stuff and are very, very, you know, they could pass an audit was how I always imagined uh, high tech. Like if you're gonna have your neck that stuck that far out against the FDA and, and fight them, they're, they must have all their I's dotted and all their T's crossed. I mean, if you're going to be that much of a squeaky wheel. Or just yeah. a lot of money. Yes, and a lot of money. Like I said, they have enough money to waste. They've judged yeah. that the opportunity cost of including these ingredients is lower than the net benefit associated with profiting from them. And they're willing to burn that capital on defending themselves. Not many companies inside the space have that sort of expendable capital, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so we have a question in the chat that maybe this would help us, uh, direct the question a little bit more towards lay consumers, whatever but he asks, uh, why do they search for the DMAA if it isn't banned then? Because it's on their advisory. So that's, this is, this is the danger. This is the danger of the FDA. This is why they're vengeful and don't come for me, by the way, FDA, if you're listening to this. So the FDA, like Joey said, could make a preemptive seizure of the compound and then make a determination after that point that it's a non-dietary ingredient, right? So the burden of proof is not on your side as a manufacturer. The burden of proof is not on your side as a marketer of dietary supplements. So the FDA could very well enjoin that shipment, which, which by the way, is precisely what they did to high tech. They enjoined like $7.8 million of raw materials. A lot, I remember, yeah. yeah. And high tech later won the suit Here's the they weren't allowed to introduce that into commerce. <laughs> the judge simply decided that the FDA didn't have the statutory authority to declare those as being a non-dietary ingredient, so not conforming with the provisions of 201G of the FDCNA, but they weren't allowed to sell it. So that matter is still up in the air. 
Awesome. In other words, the point being, the FDA has broad statutory authority to enforce their codes. It's your responsibility, ironically, because this is not a legal matter, it's a regulatory matter, to demonstrate that they're incorrect. So you don't have the presumption of guilt. Another example of, of something like this would be another related article to the banned stimulants, which was the FDA choosing to seize shipments of hygienamine over the fact that it simply just didn't have an NDI status. Yeah. So if, if there's a new ingredient that is commercially successful and is widely in a lot of products, and it also happens to be on the advisory list and there's no NDI status, then they can go ahead and seize it anyway. Yeah. So Ben, to put a bow on this, one question I think you've raised that I think is interesting. What do you say to a consumer that says, or any of you can answer, but the manufacturer or the brand is willing to give me a COA on this DMHA pre-workout? Is it a COA from their supplier or is it a COA that they that Microsoft Excel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you hear this less frequently with the stims, but you, I mean, you hear this all the time with the SARMs, right? right. Um, so, you know, I mean, even yeah, Dark like, Energy was saying they had a COA for their DMA. Yeah. Well, because yeah. I hear this from the consumer. So I want you guys to address it because oh, yeah. that was sort of the goal of this, you know, sort of thing. I won't say the company or the compound, but I've seen a COA for a compound for which there constitutionally cannot be a reference standard, and yet a COA exists for it. <laughs> so how would a certificate of analysis exist for a compound for which there is no reference standard against which this sample unit would be measured? That's essentially what COAs are worth. I've seen some ridiculous things like COAs for BCAs that were 102% pure. I'm like, okay, that's all I need to see. We will not be using these guys. <laughs> um, we talked about this in the pre-call. The issue is, in order to disconfirm that, you need access to some sort of high power to yeah. say. So, yeah, do you have access to that? Do you have access to high powered liquid chromatography or mass spectrometry? Probably not. Do you wanna spend that money? Probably not. If you did, you could disconfirm the COA, but 98% of manufacturers are not doing that. Wow. Um, Joey also had one article that went into proteins not matching label claims. And Joey, if you, I mean, I think Joey, you probably read it a little bit more in depth. I, it's been probably about a week since I read it, but I remember them being like significantly off. Well, okay. So I'm going to blame the people that are putting it together, not knowing how to work with nutritional compositions on the documentation that they get on their proteins. They say, okay, I'm going to take this whey protein isolate 90 put 25 grams in there and call it a day, put that on my label, but that's not how it works because it's only 90% pure and they've got to take that into account. A lot of these issues that you see with things like not meeting spec and all that stuff really has to do with people just not doing math. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they know the right kind of hoops that they've got to jump through in order to make a compliant label, then they wouldn't be so out of spec. And it's not because of spiking. That's one of the things that the article said is that it, it wasn't a matter of putting in any other amino acids. It's just that the amount of powder that was there just wasn't meeting label claim. Mm -hmm. Do you guys remember Labdor? Yeah. Yeah. For a minute. No. Um, Labdor was kind of like a, uh, like a third party, like similar to like a price bar fitness informant, uh, except they would... They had this proprietary ranking system for brands where they would send stuff out for testing 
and then they would have different rubrics and the purity of the product, the cost of the product, the efficacy of the product were all weighted differently. And it was possible for you to like completely fail your testing. But if you had a great enough label and a great enough price, you'd be rated like a, a B plus. Mm-hmm. And it, it sparked a huge controversy online. And that was, was so like a, some of the brands that tested high on there, weren't they found to be like completely mislabeling their protein? Yeah. Like, think of the same one. Yeah. Okay, um, like this fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So it was this really funny thing because it was like, yeah, I mean, it doesn't even meet label claim. It's completely bogus uh, supplement fact panel, but it's a great price. And it was like another example of people just not understanding math. Uh, like they were, they were sending the testing out. They didn't know what they were looking at. So, um, one of the other articles that came through is I feel like is an age old tale though. Viagra laced sex pills. Mm-hmm. Like I've, I see one of those articles like every six months, like big surprise. We ordered 10 different packets from gas station suppliers and they're all off. Is there any way that this stuff, I mean, like this is like a, like a black eye on the industry, right? It's it, they're, they're technically supplements, but they're like sold in gas stations. They're not even like through any sort of reputable distributor. Is that ever going to be dealt with? No. So you guys can correct me if this is wrongheaded, but I've heard that that entire thing is essentially a cottage industry where it's like a shell game. You know, you guys have all seen the guy in the street, the buskers where they move the the ball underneath the cups and it's one step ahead of you. But so essentially what they're doing is that I read that you can easily get like 50,000 in revenue. It's very high markup. So it's almost pure profit. You pull 30,000 in cash flow out of that. The FDA finds you 10 grand. You take your 20,000 to the bank. You start a new company, you rinse and repeat. So in other words, I've heard the incentives are so misaligned in that particular dark corner of the industry that there's no incentive for compliance because the penalty pales in comparison to the profit you can make selling essentially, for lack of a better word, gas station dick pills, right? Like let's call a spade a spade. I would take if, it a step further. If, like this couple that was in this article, if you're willing to spend 18 months in federal prison as well. Yeah. Well, it's funny. They're like the king. Like, I think everyone who's worked in the specialty, like, do you remember, like, like the one that I remember was like the black ant one is specifically referenced in that article, but they're all the ones that look like um, manga, kind of. That Those guys, and him and his wife were running that ring. Like one, one looks like Ryu from Street Fighter. <laughs> like we used to carry the, like you know everyone you know the convenience stores have them too yeah so i think i think joey's right i think i think they had gotten like sufficiently they weren't following the shell game rubric either they were just r- using the same company doing it yeah so number one and now assume tim has obscene levels of dick pill money because you have my passing uh honey pot <laughs> natural no, but that's exactly the point I was making earlier with respect to the opportunity cost is that in, in, order to, in order to face significant fines or potential jail time from the FDA, your case has to be moved from their normal regulatory di- division. So like, let's say you have a misbranded or adulterated infraction, they perform an audit on your facility, or let's say you have some more anodyne violation or non-conformance, like a, your hygiene controls weren't sufficient. They'll issue you a warning letter. You have 15 days to correct it. That warning letter is issued by a field office. If you are the subject of continuous criminality that has passed over the line from mere regulatory infraction 
to criminal behavior. So you've now crossed from 21 CFR 111 to 21 USC 321 or whatever it is, the actual part of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act. That's a law. This is like the United States Criminal Code. Then you're referred to the CDI, their uh, CID, sorry, the Criminal Investigations Division. That transit takes a significant amount of activity. So you're right, Tim, perverse incentives are set up such that you can create a just quick pop-up scheme, sell out your inventory, take the fine, shut it down, get a front man, start another corporation, have a C-corp behind that where the ownership's obfuscated or obscured from public records, and yeah, rinse and repeat. The scary thing though is that those same incentives are in place for the more legitimate part of the sports nutrition industry. And if you look at any of the uh, indictments in our industry's brief history, you'll see the same exact schemes are in place. It's just on a grander level. It's funny. I, so just you saying that, Kenton, what occurred to me is this is actually one uh, aspect of the industry that um, influencer culture and like celebrity uh, persona driven brands killed because you can't, it used not to matter who was attached to the brand. Now with the more, the, the non, you know, dick pill side of the industry, people don't want to see the jumpstart pop-up brands. That's like a carousel. They, they had thrown their lot in with their favorite celebrity persona. And that person can't afford to rotate like these dubious companies. They have to have some sort of entrenched brand, you know? Yeah. But that person nine times out of 10 has no idea who's manufacturing their products, nor do they care. The celebrity or the, the, yeah, the, well, the, if they're just like hired gun endorsers. Yeah. But you'd be shocked. Even people who have equity in businesses and their face on the label have no idea what's going in their product. Yeah. Cause someone approaches them, right. They basically yeah. tap on the shoulder and say, Hey, do you want to make passive revenue? Exactly. Yeah. 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 But I think part of, I think it's a tertiary effect. So it's not as if, and I, I don't think you're saying this, Tim, but it's not as if, <laughs> It's not as if their reputational concerns are superseding any proclivity towards illegitimacy in our space. I think it's the consumers driving that. So even, like my points, I think is still valid. They have no idea what's going in the product, but I still recognize what you're saying that they're probably ensuring that they're doing the due diligence not to associate themselves with those people inside the circular Venn diagram of people who, right, who wouldn't pass a GMP audit and people who would manufacture DMHA. Hopefully there's a cadre of advisors surrounding them that helps uh, like separate the wheat from the chaff. And then I think consumers, you're right, are driving more demand associated with transparent labeling, associated with better manufacturing practices. I do think that that is now a competitive advantage. And so I think the market is driving our self-regulation inside of this, the non-dick pill side of the dietary supplement industry. So that's a kind of a good segue for something. Um, we talked about the Amazon testing uh, on our pre-call last week. Um, for the people who aren't aware, Amazon introduced a certain amount of testing for brands to get to market within Amazon. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, do you think that supports like our opinions that we came up with on our last episode? Do you think that it's a good sign based on the things that we were talking about in the last episode that Amazon is asking for these Um <clears throat> and what are the limitations of it? Because I know Kenton's going to talk about how it's futile. <laughs> well, here, I'll tell you a funny story to maybe kick it off and then they can they can grab the baton. But um, at one point in 2015, uh, Steve and I at Natural Body were doing north of 400000 a month in Amazon revenue alone. Huh? 
and we were unceremoniously kicked off Amazon uh, with no recourse. And they held $280,000 of our money for 90 days because they told us with great gusto that they had determined that I-Force Hemoval contained Dianabol. We all know that's patently absurd. Mm-hmm. This was before Dave Nelson had sold I-Force to high tech, but I used to work at I-Force. Hemoval was great and it did not contain Dianabol. It wasn't that great. <laughs> well, it did help sort of break in the whole like arginine free uh, in my estimation, but regardless, efficacy aside, it didn't have illicit mm-hmm. steroids, but I mean, Amazon's legal team, it's like getting tarred with like the brush of whatever, like once you've been, once that, that, uh, scarlet letter has been put on you, you could, there, there was no rec- like there was no path to reinstatement on Amazon. Like to this day, if I log in with that email, that Amazon is closed off to me. It just says like, wow. Hey, your account has been suspended. You know, Basically, do not pass go, do not collect $200. There's no um, escalation. Like I had to go through friends that were on the Amazon uh, Kindle team, like uh, had gotten me with like an in, you know, friend of a friend, like here's someone you could talk to. And they were like, yeah, sorry, nothing we could do. Once once the legal team does it. So um, I'm saying this is good in a long-winded fashion because things like that were happening as little as five to six years ago. And you can see how, how wrongheaded that is. And they probably were legitimate things that they took care of on there, but there was a lot of innocent bystanders in that, in that, you know, uh, firing squad thing. So I'm actually in favor of as much regulation on Amazon as possible. I think brands should be the only one to sell to Amazon. I don't like when third parties get in because one thing that drives me nuts that brands will do, and you guys brands can speak to this is they'll be like, Oh, well, we've nominated these six people as our official Amazon sellers. And it's like, why aren't you the official Amazon seller? You're the brand. Like how lazy could you be? You want to control your artwork and control your, your brand listings and everything. So the fact that they've allowed brands to close off those things from third-party sellers, and I am a, like, I, we don't use Amazon anymore, but I would technically be the third-party seller. And I think it's a net bad. Because the brands don't control their pricing, they don't control their product pages, they don't control their positioning or anything like that. Basically, their catalog is in the hands of strangers that have different, let's say, acquaintances that have different incentives than the brand does. Like, as much as Joey probably thinks Naturalize is a cool uh, account, he doesn't necessarily want me running his Amazon listings, you know? And it's very much like a brute force thing. Like, the person who has the most touch points with it controls it. Okay. That was that was a lot. I I do want to add that I really do agree as as someone who has dealt with Amazon accounts before that only brands should be selling on there and once other people get involved it's it's a political move you know like well this distributor or group of stores is going to bring us this amount per year they can be allowed into this because it's worth the trouble. So Tim, I think Tim the prop I think your primary primary problem is well maybe twofold. <clears throat> Number one, there is no arbitrative mechanism by which you can argue against Amazon once they've made their declaration or disposition, it's final. That's problematic for a whole host of reasons and in a whole host of companies that control a massive part of our infrastructure and institutional arrangements, which is a whole separate topic. Um, The second is that if it exists, it's tenebrous, it's shadowy, obscure. You don't know how to access the levers. 
So last podcast, and I don't give a fuck who asked me, but I said libertarianism is a wildly idiotic political philosophy. This is what I mean. So instances like this are the legitimate function of government. So both in your country and there's a, an analog law in my country, something called the Administrative Procedures Act. And the Administrative, Administrative Procedures Act, though its mechanisms have become sclerotic and abused by entrepreneurial litigators, its purpose is to make transpicuous any administrative decision. So if the FDA, FTC, et cetera, make an administrative decision, number one, it has to be clear and conspicuous. Number two, they can't promulgate new standards that extend past their congressionally appointed power. And number three, most importantly, and this is what especially conservative litigators since the 80s have feasted on, all administrative decisions are subject to uh, judicial review. So if you guys have ever seen those cases working themselves through the courts, those all turn on the Administrative Procedures Act, the power that it confers to people like you and I to sue the government if we feel like their decision was obscure. There's nothing like that for Amazon. There's nothing like that for Facebook. Facebook or Instagram could arbitrarily or capriciously ban your account that you use to generate revenue for your brand. There's no recourse mechanism. Amazon, like you experienced Tim firsthand, shut down your account. They, they have these like um, almost puerile arbitration mechanisms. You can access them, but they are impotent. They don't do anything. You can't go anywhere and they reach a final position. It's not as if you can appeal to Amazon's Supreme Court. So my concern as like a techno skeptic is whenever we confer a large institutional player like Amazon, the ability, ability sorry, to arbitrarily determine their own rules in excess of the rules we already have in our industry. That, yeah, that, I think that's a decidedly different problem than them rolling out new regulation, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. the monopoly problem is of a piece with this, but a little, because you kind of, you kind of agree to that when you put your hand up to use Facebook or Amazon, right? Like that's TOS stuff, terms of service. You, you basically say that in exchange for access to the world's largest marketplace, you essentially can eat my lunch at any time. Um, so abuse of power or better um, standards for supplements on Amazon sort of Venn diagram, you know, intersecting, but not the same problem, or am I missing it? No, I, my, it's their one, they're interstitial. One problem is expressed in the other. The fact that Amazon can promulgate these standards that are perhaps in excess of our industry is only possible due to their purchasing power. And the fact that they, they can at almost any time exert a functional monopoly on any industry that they want. Like, and that's what concerns me. It's that right now, is this a problem? No, but what if we get into a circumstance where Amazon's rules in some way contradict with the law, maybe contradict to the, that redounds to the benefit of consumers, but to the detriment of manufacturers. And so let's say Amazon actually gets their shit together and becomes a major player in the sports nutrition side. I'm not sure if you guys all remember, but when Amazon announced they're getting into supplements, everybody, it was like a, this apocalyptic scenario yep. that didn't end up happening because turns out Amazon's incompetent and in all sorts of things. But let's say that they become competent in <clears throat> Are you not concerned with the fact that they can arbitrarily institute the secondary pseudo set of standards that may be in excess of the law? And so you can say, yeah, if you, you got to pay to play. My concern is in spaces, and this has happened very frequently, it's happening now with communication, with Facebook owning WhatsApp, Instagram, et cetera. 
when we confer these companies the ability to promulgate standards that are different from or in access to the standards that the law already provides, what we are giving up is the arbitrative mechanism of the Administrative Procedures Act. Like what I would love, and this is now getting somewhat afield, is that if Congress dictated something like an Administrative Procedures Act that was inside these major corporations that would mandate a clear, transpicuous arbitration mechanism, then I would say it's great that Amazon's doing this. The point that, what, the reason why Ben said it's futile is that I said, Amazon's not getting in the business of vetting contract manufacturers. So they're instituting these arbitrary rules, even though they have no fucking idea what they're doing. They're, it's just a blanket risk mitigation strategy. And that concerns me. So that's a really solid point. Yeah. Go ahead, Joey and Drew. Well, with, with them, I think it's just all about like just getting documentation and paperwork to, you know, cover themselves if they're ever in a pinch when it comes to some sort of regulatory action. I think that's it. And then once, you know, that house of cards starts to fall, they'll point at manufacturers or brands or whoever and say, well, <clears throat> that they provided this documentation, you know, this is how they got on here. So they're really just looking to check a box. One of the requests that I got from Amazon was for a C of A from a third-party testing facility. And they're not going to give you a certificate. I mean, it is, it is, they'll give you the analytical results and there's mm -hmm. disclaimers at the bottom of their results that you actually like, you know, link to an NDA where you're not supposed to share those results with anybody. So how are we supposed to give you a third-party C of A when, you know, it just, you just get the testing results? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess Kenton has the main uh, point here, which is that just the arbitrariness that's generated by uh, big bureaucratic organizations and the fact that they don't understand our industry really. So they're making sort of like blanket policy decisions that can control the fate of these brands. And they're not like grounded in, uh, you know, the, the regular legal proceedings, Kenton, do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's my concern is that our industry actually has pretty tight regulations. I, I noticed that, noted that last time. The issue is enforcement. You can have like the analogy I always give is like, <clears throat> let's say you have 10,000 roads in a country and but police only monitor five of them. It doesn't matter how tight the regulations are on manufacturing specifications for cars. It doesn't matter what the speed limits are. It doesn't matter what the drunk driving rules are if fractions of 1% of the roads are actually monitored by police, it doesn't matter what the laws are. Bechet and the Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act is a half decent regulatory framework. There are problems with it that we noted last time. So I, I'm disinclined to accept when private agents like Amazon institute their own standards that are separate from and perhaps in excess to the mechanisms that we already have for regulation inside of our space because those mechanisms can be capricious and the FDA can act arbitrarily, but we have recourse, we have legal recourse. <clears throat> There's no such thing as a re legal recourse if Amazon decides to shut down your store. Unless, sorry, let me make a caveat so nobody adds me. Unless you wanna spend the millions and millions of dollars litigating against Amazon and attempt to prove that point, which is quixotic and useless. Uh, one thing My that Joey, sorry. What I was just going to say, my too long didn't read would be that if Amazon was halfway competent in this space, I would say great, but they've repeatedly demonstrated themselves to be wildly incompetent at access, assessing this sort of thing. And so, yeah, it concerns me that one of the world's most valuable companies is arbitrarily and capriciously instituting extra legal standards on our space. So like I was reading that as like 
to use the anecdote about Hemavol, that they were so wildly out of touch that this was a net good, you know, in terms of the direction of the regulation. But capricious is a good word. If it's going to be that, you know, again, just like ruthlessly arbitrary where they don't, they're not deferring to any such advisory board except their in-house legal counsel. And like, I think Joey was saying, the, the lens they're making decisions then is cover RS, you know, defer the liability to whoever submitted the paperwork and just if, if, if in doubt, punt the account off the, the, the platform. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's funny because like you guys could probably all speak to this, but we fight like legitimacy, legitimacy war on two fronts. We fight the, the supplement industry is not regulated sort of mythos that Kendon just talked about is actually a common misconception. And you get like your relatives and friends and family come out of the woodwork, at least for me. And they'll say, oh, you know, supplements, uh, <laughs> isn't it all like tainted or, you know, like I, my doctor said, that's all bullshit, you know, don't vitamins are a waste of money. Like have all these misconceptions. Um, and then like on the other side of that would be like, uh, we talked about without naming who it is. Someone recently had a brush with the FDA where they were, uh, distressingly not concerned about the DMHA, but, you know, hornine was very problematic and it's just like, what are we doing? So, you know, you have like that micro level of whatever you want to call that misprioritization by the, the enforcement arm of the FDA or the, and then the lay public's misconception that supplements are all uh, tainted, you know, and therefore not worthwhile. So it's like, we're like in the middle of that, that tug of war. Mm-hmm. Isn't there an enforcement? Didn't uh, FDA field agents um, go into stores on the West Coast and pick up DMHA bottles? I don't know if everyone remembers that. There were some warning letters sent Something out. Something happened with Vegas discount. That's the West Coast that you're talking yeah. about. I don't know if it was SARMs or I can't remember. Pretty sure it was DMHA specifically they picked up. I've noticed that too. There, there will be weird prioritization of different ingredients and in, in where I would consider in the same class of gray. But like some months it's DMH, but some months it's hoarding specifically. Yeah. Um, oh, go ahead. Speaking on SARMs, Joey also shared an article in here about MuscleGen having a side business, and he uh, he got picked up for mislabeling SARMs as dietary and supplements, dietary ingredients or supplements. Uh, my question for you guys is how far out is it there when people are doing these these research chemical versions? Though, like, how, I mean, how laughable is that in terms of wishing they protect themselves. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, there's, there's the spectrum of it. People literally doing research sites where it's in a, it's a, it's suspended in a liquid. They didn't even try to like put it in a capsule or anything. It's labeled not for human it's another use. Another exploitation of a loophole where, well, it's just for my rat. But then as soon as yeah. you start putting stuff in capsule form after putting not for human consumption, like it kind of is like, well, why is it not for human consumption? You put it in the capsule. That's kind of why, you know, the little loophole there, it's liquid form, it's for experiments, it's legal to buy, you know, so it's kind of, it's kind of the same kind of jurisdiction, but when you have some asshole putting stuff in a capsule form and labeling it as research facts, you're like, I don't believe that exists, sir, but nice try. It's very creative, I'll give them that, very creative. <laughs> oh, the research facts label? Like yeah, re- research facts. I was like, you got to be shitting me. I'm like, that's not a thing. I've had people direct message me, ask me, hey, what do you think about my brand? I'm like, 
well, I think it's hot fucking garbage. But um, aside from that, you can't put that. It's not a thing. You can't put research. It's from the contra manufacturer. I'm like, they probably made that in their fucking bathtub. That's not a thing. Just because they told you it's a thing doesn't mean it exists. Find somebody else and stop trying to make a hundred unit run to start a supplement brand. Do not tread in the space. Tim, do you do you feel pressure as a brick and mortar store to like float that line between them? I mean, I remember um, years ago, you guys had you know your ibutamorin and stuff like that. Like back when it was still pretty passable. Um, we've talked about you know dick pills that you kind of generally understand some of them are going to be somewhat spiked like do you feel pressure with other brick and mortar stores to pick up stuff that's kind of in between uh we drew the line on sarms and the daska stuff uh a long time like 2017 ish 2018 Mm -hmm. um and i remember we had like trolling lawyers like i remember there was like a it's a dmz product that was still listed on our website, but as out of stock, right? Mm. And some lawyer, like ambulance chaser, they're just running uh, web crawler queries. And they're like, oh, hey, you have dimethazine on your site. You know, you've been named to this class action. And like nothing ever came of it, but the guy definitely wanted us to pay him money to go away. And we're like, hey, it's out of stock. It's been out of stock. But um, yeah, I mean, look, it's 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 completely, it, the the, and I'm sure you guys have plenty of your own, but the SARM horror stories would, would completely, you know, knock you off your chair. Just, just women getting uh, recommended these things. Like, um, and that, you know, that, that's locally competitors, but also it's, it's endemic to our industry. Um, so we get a lot of inquiries. That one hasn't been as hard. I definitely think, you know, speaking honestly, I would have a hard time dying on the hill right now that we're, we're no longer going to carry DMHA. Um, we don't carry DMAA except for like the wink, wink, nudge, nudge high tech, which, you know, kind of like we covered that. It, it's like they were given their DMAA back, but told, you know, you can't put it into uh, commercial uh, use. So they're using geranium extract without DMAA. I mean, I don't know, but th- that one actually makes me feel okay because they are part of an ongoing, um, you know, court this right so there's no out there hasn't been a resolution as far as the high-tech brand selling dma that we're aware of yet so yeah the the stim side for sure i mean there are there are other retailers in new york that private label dmaa and that that shows up all the time at the counter and like it's hard to tell someone that either they're probably not getting dma or the company's being overtly uh unlawful the manufacturer at least right because mm-hmm. we talked about with, with kenton with uh you know imprecise language here but yeah I, to just to succinctly i would have a hard time turning the faucet off of the gray area stimulants and i think it's largely a case of concealed preferences too right where like people say that they want whistle clean pre-workouts that you know are uh completely by the book and above board. But when you look at their behavior, I mean, there's plenty of brand reps that order from us. Yeah. Things that have DMHA that work for companies that sell completely viable non DMHA formulas. You know, it's kind of like the, we, we talked about that, uh, Ben, if you remember on the price plow, when I was just the guest on the regular channel, you know, it's yeah. like, um, like the kink thing, don't kink shame me, but yeah. like that, that, that might not be their everyday um, 
preference, but they definitely have some of that. So I think lay consumers are no different. It's just the, they're confused by this messiness of like, so am I, you know, are they gonna come after me? Like that they'll, they'll actually raise those concerns. I'm like, look, they're never going to go after consumers. They'll, they're seldom will go after retailers. It's usually retailers that have house brands where they're yeah. contracting it that get in trouble. Um, and maybe they'll go after brands, but usually it's manufacturers that, that uh, you know, have the ultimate liability. So, yeah, I mean, we, we have not turned that faucet. I, I understand, you know, it's hard for, for legitimate brands to compete against. I do. I, I've heard that criticism from a lot of brands, but um, it definitely moves the needle in terms of units. And to Kenton's point about libertarianism and maybe being, um, you know, wrongheaded or misguided, it's, it's if you could push a button and make DMHA illegal, you know, or, or SARMs or pick your poison, people would just black market it. Like simply making it illegal doesn't deter the behavior for many. In fact, in some cases, it sort of legitimizes it and makes it more desirable, you know, because if really it's illegal, funny. it must be good, that sort of thing, right? So, yeah. Um, I, I, so like, that's where I think like the, the SARM um, situation is unfortunate because a lot of people are unwittingly taking things that aren't SARMs vis-a-vis -vis pills or, or um, liquid droppers, like Drew was saying, and they're being led to believe they're taking SARMs, but then they're getting all sorts of side effects that would seem to suggest that they either weren't the SARM or they're actually pro-hormones or whatever. And, you know, if there was some sort of legitimizing agency that could control this, where they would get what they wanted to get, I would be more in favor of it where so people could sort of make their own decision personally, you know? So you brought up a, an interesting comparison there. And, and by the way, the whole legitimizing it, if it's actually banned before I was actually even a, a part of price, Bob, when I did a podcast with Mike, I said, they've all kind of like, if DMA became the level uh, like PEDs are at where it's banned, but people still take them it'd be kind of interesting, right? Because I don't hate DMA as an ingredient. I, I felt great on it. I had some incredible competitions on it. But just like how we all kind of like don't talk about everyone getting their testosterone because like you'll find a good source there. Like if DMA became that level where it was underneath the industry, it'd almost be more trust. I'd almost be more trustworthy of it. Um, you brought up an interesting point, which was uh, geranium for DMAA. And one thing I, I wanted to bring up was this week we saw, um, I'll bring up that video I did with uh, Naughty Boy Lifestyle. They had juglins in their pre-workout. And I wanted to ask guys that like actually have to do like actual importing or deal with different uh, companies. How many times do you see something like that where it's geranium, araya, uh, juglins or something like that and it actually is including the actual constituent within it? How many times is it just fake? You know, like how often would you actually write it to real stuff? When you say fake, can I make a further designation? Please, yes, yeah. Are we talking about willfully obscuring the presence of a potentially non-compliant ingredient and then labeling it as what ostensibly would be a non-compliant ingredient? Or how many times does a non-compliant ingredient make transit you know, obfuscated inside a non-compliant ingredient, but the marketer or manufacturer is unaware? To be like specific, what percentage of the time is it actually DMA listed as geranium versus what time is it, uh, you know, how much percentage of the time is it actually geranium that contains whatever percent DMA? And sometimes it can be like a throwaway thing, right? Like, um, what was I just looking at? Oh, uh, oh my God. What's the like hunting, like the deer thing? Yeah, deer and the velvet. Yeah, and the velvet, yeah. Yeah, but what's the, the pre-workout? Big company. Bucked up. Bucked up. Yeah. Bucked up has dendrobium. 
which in that context is probably nowadays anymore a throwaway ingredient that's not standardized for anything. But it's like one of those like buzzwords of yore, you know, where like back in the day, dendrobium meant like, you know, the, the crazy PEAs, um, you know, so it's like an appeal to like, so I think, Ben, that's what you mean is like people will put sure. uh, juglins because it might be DMHA, but it right. could just be a non-specific. It's really walnut. Word. Sorry? And it's really walnut husks. Yeah. Walnut, yeah. yeah English yeah. walnut is an, yeah. What was the one that Anova Farm used a couple of years ago in their MV Pre? It was like, mm. I had really to tell me that. Like, that's how obscure it was. Um, to answer your original inquiry, yeah, everyone who's doing this knows that it's DMHA or DMA. It's just a, a, not even that clever way of surreptitiously including what they know to be an ingredient of concern for the FDA, primarily because the FDA does a majority of their searches online. And so if you put something like area gerensis rather than 1,3-DMHA, it's possible that you won't as easily pop up in a, in a web query. But everybody is perfectly aware. Like, yeah. So um, I cheated then, but biophytum. Yes. Yeah. So let's take a geranium graviolens. 1,3-dimethylamylamine, depending on the soil topography, growing conditions, et cetera, might constitute 0.2% of the total volume of bioactive compounds in geranium graviolens. So on the strictest basis humanly possible, if you could somehow demonstrate that a significant population of people eat fucking geranium plants, <laughs> then it would be Deshaya compliant. Right. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about the strictest definition, like hanging on by a thread of your life, strictest definition. In order to get, can you imagine the amount of biomass of geranium you would need for a hundred milligrams of one, three dimethylamylamine? It's yeah. synthetic. It's, it's, we all, and everybody knows this. They do it anyways. It's synthetic. There's no, it is economically unfeasible. To extract I think the geranium was a, was a bad example. That's what, I was, that's what I was hinting at earlier when you first kicked off the illegal stimulants, like economically feasible to get it from the biomass. That's the exact thing I was referring to. So yeah, yeah. it's not. So that it's it's synthetic. Which, by the way, but, it but, but that doesn't have to be a prerequisite that's met, right? That it, it yeah. could theoretically be derived from in that amount to, well, to make an NDI. There's the five conditions or whatever of. Uh, 201G, and I'm just off, it's off the top of my head. It's what is it? Amino acid, vitamin, mineral, botanical, any constituent thereof or combination. I think Joey uh, looked it up last time, and it has to be present in the food supply prior to 1994. So the extraction from biomass, the presence in the food supply prior to 1994 is where the issue vacillates, right? So you need to demonstrate that that compound was present in the food supply. Not just that, like the, the plant. Exactly. Right. So, because what the FDA will say is, give me a break. It's 0.2% of the total volume. Nobody who was eating geranium plants was doing it for the nutritional benefit conferred by 1,3-dimethylamylamine, right? Whereas you can say about bananas, right? Potassium chloride is Deshaya compliant because you can make a case that people were consuming bananas for the nutritional benefit conferred by potassium prior to 1994. So it was a constituent conforming to one of those five provisions and it was in the food supply prior to 1994. Is that why, um, this is, sorry, just real quick, but this, it's not what I'm saying is not definitive because there's maybe there's litigators in watching the stream losing their shit about, and I don't want to seem as if I'm being too binary, 
But that's the problem. That those sorts of vagaries or ambiguities in the law are where litigation turns, but our industry hasn't mounted the concerted effort to push the FDA to make more rigid demarcations like that. Kenton, isn't that why like T's, like, um, you know, T-E-A-T uh, are, are prized as extracts because- Exactly, There's, yes, exactly. Like making exactly. the act of tea is like a de facto extraction of yes. sorts. Okay. Yes. That, and that's why uh, the ingredient manufacturers, which by the way, I would love if we had a discussion about how <laughs> any, and this is not to attack you, Ben, but any review site or whatever, if any company uses a branded or trademarked ingredient, it just confers it legitimacy, despite the fact that I'm not sure if any of you guys have ever reviewed these data. <laughs> They're fucking embarrassing. Half of these data are just don't prove anything that the branded or named ingredient manufacturers are claiming. Don't at me, branded ingredient manufacturers. But yeah, that's why there's been so much research in the past 10 years on teas. It's for that exact reason. We've done both sides of that argument. We've obviously had ingredient manufacturers come on and talk about the beautiful, wonderful wonderland that is owning a, you know, branded ingredient. And we've had, we've had lawyers come on and talk the other side of the case. Um, it goes back and forth. It's a, well, my point is it's a mixed bag, but mm -hmm. our industry doesn't treat, treat it with the requisite ambivalence. It's a mark of legitimacy. Brands, even brands of which I've been a part say, for a, this, this pre-workout contains four branded or trademarked ingredients. And yeah. then it shows up on a review site and the review site, oh, well, you know for a fact because it's ingredient X and it has a TM beside it, it has these effects. But those are mostly pilot studies in like 10 individuals. And the standard error is like 50% of the effect size, which if you know anything about statistics, renders that result completely insignificant. Or they're p-hack, they didn't test the null hypothesis properly. They didn't perform any sort of meaningful re regression analysis. These problems plague those sorts of studies and there is a completely insufficient amount of discussion or dialogue about those studies. And we instantaneously accept because somebody did the work to put a TM or an R beside an ingredient that not only does it work, but it works in the populations that they stipulate and to the degree to which they stipulate it. And this would, to me is a major problem. I would take it like literally a step further and say that uh, I've not, not, I won't say anyone by name. I've uh, seen reviewers talk about trademarked ingredients uh, and talk about how uh, incredible this ingredient is and them not know that that uh, ingredient was just a generic ingredient that a brand trademarked, like creatine monohydrates. A few different brands own a trademark on a creatine monohydrate that has no studies behind it, has no data behind it, and they just name it a special thing and put it on the label. And people get food fooled by it all the time. Even further, a few of those companies that do that never even trademarked it with the US patent or anything like that. So <laughs> put it like, aside. maybe it, it, hap it happens pretty frequently. Isn't this like a hackable space too? Like, I think Joey can talk about Glaxon does it well. They have a three choline blend that I believe they named, right? Or trademarked. But then yeah. I always like, there's one thing that uh, high tech uses that gets a lot of questions. Uh, and it's like the only ingredient in steel's pump pill, but it's also like in seven. It's, no, it's, it's like, um, <laughs> it's just named funny. Yeah. So it's like, it's like, um, pomegranate, right. And then it's, it's epimedium or icarian, but it, they have like the, the, uh, Sigma Aldrich, like nomenclature, the CAS. Oh, yeah, I, I thought that's when you were bringing up the, the icarin. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you know what I'm talking about like that. So like that gets talk about obfuscation. 
that sales right over the head. I mean, steel is selling a pump hill, $70. And that is the standalone single ingredient. It might have bio pairing. And then like you can buy Chemex King of Pumps yep. for $45. And it has that same ingredient at the same dose wrapped around a 20 gram, you know, viable product on its face. So like, like that just goes to show you like, and consumer consumers will earnestly DM me and be like, Hey, what do you think of steel S seven? You know, I really want to try it. And it's like, man, this is epicatechin, pomegranate and Icarian. And it's like, you know, 500, is it even 500 milligrams of that? And like, there, uh, you know, I ahead. distinctly remember Chemex having a higher dose per serving in an entire powder and being less money than the steel. Yeah. And like that, you know, but I think it's the, it's the nomenclature that throws them. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's just that's, smoking mirrors. And that's smuggled in under the auspices of a branded ingredient. Mm-hmm. It got me at first. I remember spending an afternoon Googling that ingredient. I'm going to, I'm going to place the IUPAC name in the chat for the sake of everyone at home. And when you see this on a label, you're like, what? To, uh, to defend, let's just call them branded ingredient manufacturers. There are some players in that space who are performing legitimate research and they are doing legwork and they are excellent actors in our space. And I have used their ingredients and formulations in the past, have assessed their data and it looks fine. They're also doing a lot of legwork in terms of getting ingredient grass status. They're actually doing the work of doing DI. So they're filing their new dietary ingredient forms like they're supposed to. My point rather was just on our first podcast, we talked about organons because we don't have an ordering set of principles by which we discriminate innovative from copycat in our space or quality from non-quality something like a branded ingredient can be used by somebody who is, I don't know, not as beneficent and they can create something that they know is nonsense and just uh, expropriate existing third-party independent research and then say, hey, my TM ingredient does this. Well, no, your TM ingredient doesn't do that. You're, you're just literally parroting third-party research because you put a TM on it and you may have developed some proprietary extraction technology, but then nobody asks the question of, are the compounds for which that proprietary extraction technique is selecting more pharmacologically active than the existing full spectrum extract that you can buy for 25% of the price and put in your formula? And Kenton, Joey, Drew, how many people and brands in our industry are using like bench scientists in labs to derive novel, uh, <laughs> you know, like, no, like, I, again, I think that's like the whole like muscle tech to pick on, you know, like somebody like, oh, we have white coat, like that marketing leads consumers to believe that like there are, there's supplement companies doing like legit bench science in a laboratory. And, that, and like, that doesn't, you know, that's so exceedingly rare that I don't even know if it ever does occur. You know? I'm going to self-edit this and just hint heavily that some dumb butt fucker that named their lab after mythical gods and had put labs on the other name. You probably guess what I'm talking about goes on and on and on and on about how they've synthesized so many ingredients. We're first to market with all these things. And I'm like, first and foremost, it's not even your ingredient. Second of all, yeah, I'm just going to self-edit once again, because I think 
Ben knows who I'm talking yes, about. Yes, please. Great discussion. Please edit this hard. I did. I didn't say the. I didn't say the name. Please just. Can we play for a moment and recognize that this man said butt fucker and then said he was going to self-edit? Yeah. <laughs> self-edit is to not say directly the name of the brand. I don't oh, even know yeah, if they're in business not. anymore. So therefore, it, they get fucking mad. The shoe fits. Fuck you, bitch. Um, hmm. There's one. There's very few people in industry that I cannot stand. This is one of those people. So that's they're, they're treading very lightly to say I don't like you, this guy. Anyway. Um, with that being said, you know, they can paint this picture about, you know, I think of what um, some of these brands and once again, I'm a science guy. So it's pretty funny to go and call people out there on this. I'm not saying, oh, we're novel. We're over here doing these things in the lab every day. But to take it to the extent where I think of like, you know, them, I, I picture like the movie Step Brothers, like, so we're scientists. We put white out on a bee and it died and we came up with this ingredient. That's what I think of when I hear some of this stuff. I'm like, bro, like, a lot of that doesn't happen. There are some, like I said, Kent mentioned some ingredient supply companies that do some very, very, very good job on some novel, practical ingredients with very good, thorough science. On the other time, too, I've seen some kind of uh, do some facade where they kind of give that impression in terms of, oh, we have this ingredient with this study and this study and this study. They're kind of looking at the studies and like, well, that's very small in terms of sample size. The correlation data isn't as strong as you indicated to be, like for certain things you know there's a couple ingredients i tend to like as accessory ingredients but then again if you're making the standalone claim where our product will increase nitric oxide by 230 percent you know okay compared to what you know what i use that as standalone pump ingredient not necessarily however i like it as a complementary ingredient thing so it's all depending on how heavy-handed you want to go with some of the claims there but in terms to your point you know people sitting around bunch of lab coats brands specifically paying for this research i think few if any brands, specifically in supplement space, are going out and paying that kind of money to synthesize new ingredients. And there's been a few things I've seen, like as stimulatory ingredients, like, like okay, what, what is that exactly? You, just because you call it something special and call it a brand and ingredient that you did doesn't mean it's like novel and or exists. Especially with a proprietary blend of like three grams in a pre-workout with a bunch of garbage fucking clowns on the package. Anyway, I think I've availed things very thinly, but this is, you guys see where I'm going with this. I'll tap out now. So, and then at the same time, like if, if you actually like do some bench work and actually come up with a new ingredient kind of thing, you know, there's, there's a lot of hoops and hurdles that you've got to jump through to get that thing to market. You know, you've, you've got to run some rodent studies and you've got to run some, some toxicity studies and some other stuff. And if you want to do that kind of thing, it does take a considerable amount of capital to really push behind it. And it's risky because it may not work. Um, or it may be too good and maybe you've ended up making a drug out of something that wasn't a drug before, you know, I've, I've had these experiences, but you know, I've got stuff sitting on my shelf that I can make from two ingredients here in this lab that forms a third ingredient, but just, you know, being exposed to the liquid in the open air that, you know, could be like anabolic steroid grade, but I don't really want to go down that road because it's something that even though it's super potent, it's like, you know, what if it's, what if it's too good? You know, what if it increases like your prostate cancer risk and a whole bunch of other things that you're not anticipating, which I'm pretty sure it would. So if, if you guys are okay with that conversation kind of rounding off there, something that was kind of talk, the way we got into this conversation was talking about different ways that you can trust brands. Like, uh, could you trust them if they use these trademarked ingredients kind of piggybacking off of the organon talk, uh, the, the, the chat's been pretty heated tonight. 
I don't know if, you, if any of you guys watch it, but there was a one part where someone was asking about why they can trust brands, because we were talking about trust earlier. Uh, and they asked for testing, and specifically, Joby was kind of going back and forth with them about it. And I kind of brought up the fact that a lot of um, enthusiasts of the industry will eventually get frustrated at a certain point because you can't really trust brands. The trademark ingredients aren't all that great. And then testing, if you ask for that, does it does half the time it doesn't mean anything to a normal consumer, or you can't trust that the testing is even legitimate. So or kind of boiling. Yeah, right. And if it's if it's an honest lab too. So I, if there are any th any things that you as uh, an, an enthusiast of supplements who knows nothing about manufacturing quality, you've never read, uh, you know, 21 CFR, you don't know anything about GMPs or anything like that, what actually can you latch onto to, to trust in this industry? Because anything can almost be faked in this industry. Yeah. If you're a consumer? Yeah. Nothing. What would you, what the fuck would they do? <laughs> I don't even you, have your, you have the results of the product and if they work as advertised, then you know that, you, you know, for the most part, you're probably not getting something fraudulent. Yeah. Um, if your results be. are too good, then it's probably something spiked. Uh, you know, or, or, you know, you can, you can have that illusion too, because like there, if say like you were taking like a product for six months, you, you got the results that you thought you were getting and you're like, okay, you know, I know what six grams of citrulline feels like, but that company might've been using like six grams of maltodextrin instead. And then you finally experience six grams of citrulline and all of a sudden you get crazy pumps and it's like, oh, I'm on steroids. This has got to be spiked. You know, <laughs> you, you, you can have the, re those reactions in like both ends of the spectrum. Um, and one of the things that we did bring up in the chat was I think that Amazon or, or either through the collaboration with Whole Foods or something used to have one of their in-house brands that had like QR codes that were on the label that you could take your phone out and you could actually see the testing results of the C of A or whatever. And I remember like perusing this um, a few years back. I want to say it was about 2016 where I was in a Whole Foods, saw this QR code thing, pulled it up and it had a Chinese C of A on it. And I was like, well, this isn't really third party testing results. And I'm not necessarily sure that, you know, these guys would necessarily want that out there. And they're like, what percentage of those people, you know, are actually scanning the QR code and knowing what they're looking at? Mm -hmm. And I think that there's got to be some way of doing some sort of third party testing that is transparent and verifiable, but nobody right now, aside from like individual kind of things, like I mentioned in the chat, the sub soup verified kind of thing, you share your results with him and he gives you like a little badge in his app. There's a couple of those things like informed choice. They do it too, but you know, they're, they're only doing it in the sense that it's like free of banned substances. They're not going to do the full gamut testing on everything else. See, so, and then that's because to take that, because uh, to devil's advocate against that, in, informed sport, I believe, doesn't test for uh, Cialis or Viagra in the pump products. They don't actually test for a lot of drugs, um, which is something I, I recently learned. And I've like we've seen mistake labels even on those certified brands. So it almost seems like I mean, the, the stuff slips through the cracks all the time. Uh, one of the things that I kind of like have joked about, and, and this is not anything I'm asserting at all. This is a totally joke, hypothetical scenario, but like, I think we can all kind of agree that Nutribio is one of like the higher caliber brands that actually does the things they talk about and they, they take quality serious. But like, what if it was all social media? Like what if behind the scenes they were manufacturing DMA and stuff like, like none, no one, even if you're looking at their testing would know that, you know, it, it could all be smoke and mirrors in some point. That's the point. 
that's the point that I was going to make. So I don't want to mischaracterize whatever the people in the chat are saying. I was wondering why Joey's been yeah. so silent. He's been trolling yes. people. I trolling people in the chat. You guys yeah. doing that in parallel is crazy because that like breaks my brain trying to so monitor. <laughs> The point that I would make to them, Ben, is the same point that I make about conspiracy theorists. So if, any, if anyone spend any significant amount of time talking to someone who believes in a conspiracy theory, in, in the parameters of the conspiracy theory, they seem like the most rigorous, empirically minded scientists available. They question absolutely everything. They say the government is, let's just take 5G. The government is implanting 5G chips in us to control this. As they're propagating that information on Facebook, which is a platform whose sole function is to track everything that you say and do, build a comprehensive file about your age, location, the device you use, your interests, who you went to school with, where you went to school, and that doesn't bother them. So I call those people preferential skeptics. So the people who problematize the lack of rigor in our industry are preferential skeptics, because guess what? Every fucking day, they're going to the grocery store and buying food that is produced under the exact same sorts of standards that the dietary supplements we are producing, and they don't question it for one second. But that's a normal human tendency. Does this bread taste good? Yeah, you can't live <laughs> life with that sort of rigor. At some yeah. point, you decide to prejudicially select the things that you are going to be skeptical about, ignoring that the same processes by which you're skeptical about that thing are retarded or delayed or significantly mitigated in almost every other part of your life because you can't live your life being that rigorous. So mm -hmm. a long way of saying they're, they're raising a valid problem, but they need to expand the scope of the problem to consume every single thing they put in their mouth, what they put on their body, the deodorant that they use, the sunscreen that they use, how do you know that you can trust Johnson and Johnson that they're putting the proper ingredients in that lotion? They're not putting a QR code that you can scan on there. They're subject to the same law, the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act that we are. Kendon, I think right. you haven't spent enough time with conspiracy theorists because <laughs> what tends to happen is that everything in their life becomes a conspiracy. You know, they they that to me is how, why you 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 can go you know from. 5G to Vax to chemtrails pretty quickly because once something becomes a conspiracy, then everything becomes a conspiracy. But on a serious note, I often give this two-pronged advice. And then I would love for, to hear what you guys actually think about it because you're attached to brands. What I tell consumers is simply twofold. You know, uh, putting aside for a moment your individual experience with the products themselves, which certainly probably counts the most, and then also recommendations of people that you like, know, trust, whatever. Does the company, are they willing to divulge where they manufacture? Just where, that's all I want to know. And somewhat of a venture capitalist uh, sort of advice is bet on the jockey, not the horse. So the longer the resume or the bona fides or, or the experience or the amount of touch points you've had with them on social media, as Ben mentioned, can be manipulated. But I think in the fullness of time, you get a feel for who's, you know, um, like Naval, uh, he's a great Twitter follow you guys or maybe Instagram. He's been on Rogan a couple of times, uh, Naval Ravikant at Naval, uh, N-A-V-L like Naval. He talks about how in any industry like this, but in particularly industries like ours where they're, they're, they're small, right? Everyone says supplements are a small world. Um, there's only so many players. So if you want to stay in the game for a long time, you have to optimize for integrity because, um, you know, at some point you'll get, you'll get flushed out, right? If, if you're not a high integrity person. So, so bet on the jockey, not the horse. You're betting on the person, not necessarily the brand, no matter how shiny and promising the Instagram promises are made. 
and then do, are they willing to tell you where they manufacture? This could be wrong, but this is my standard advice for consumers that are looking for a way to, because I, I, uh, Ben, isn't this the question that was, was proposed in the chat? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So you guys push back on that because I'm curious to see yeah. where that's good or bad. This is going to be one of our maybe too abstruse or philosophical disagreements, but did I talk on the last podcast about Dan Ariely's work? He's a behavioral economist. Economist. This is a pre-call. The uh, fuzzy thing. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The fudge factor. So factor. There you go. This guy named Dan Ariely. He wrote an amazing book called Predictably Irrational. He tested something called a fudge factor, and he was attempting to discern the rate at which people would be deceptive. He was specifically interested in whether or not degrees of abstraction from the deceptive act and the remuneration proportionally increase how much you lie. So in other words, if you separate how you're compensated for something from the act during which you're deceptive, does that change either the frequency with which you'll deceive the person or your intensity? Turns out it doesn't. And the way they set up this condition was gave a bunch of Princeton undergrad students a math test that was unsolvable and then parameterized the conditions differently to see what the fudge factor or the degree by which people would lie would increase or decrease. So the only thing that changed the level of deception wasn't the incentive. So it wasn't whether they got $1 or $5 for every correct answer. It was the degrees of abstraction away from the remuneration. So in one condition, Tim, you go, you fill out your math test, you go hand it to somebody directly, you're given a dollar. There was a tiny amount of lying, small fudge factor. In the secondary condition, you don't hand the person a piece of paper, you hand that person a piece of paper, that person hands you a token. So now we're getting closer to how money operates. And then you go exchange that token for your remuneration down the hall, fudge factor goes way up. But it's not a small amount of psychopaths who are massively deceiving, it's everybody lying by just a little bit. Now in a, a third condition, they subjected these Princeton undergrads to something called the Princeton Honesty Pledge, which doesn't exist but it was just a pledge that they would not cheat, that they'll be honest, et cetera. Fudge factor goes way down. Here's another example. In the grad, I think it was the grad office at MIT where he teaches, he set up two conditions. One condition was just cans of Coke with the monetary value of $1 in a fridge. Comes back the next, next day, they're all gone because that's one degree of abstraction away from the actual money, right? He puts a plate of $1 bills in the fridge, comes back the next day, they're all gone. The monetary value is the same. The theft, whether you steal someone's can of Coke or $1, the actual monetary value you've deprived that person of is equivalent. But it's the act, the degree of abstraction. And I'm not just going on a desultory masturbatory exercise here. I'm dovetailing this into what you're saying and why I'm pushing back is the incentives in our industry are aligned such that I think there's a pervasive fudge factor. So in the long run, yes, people are incentivized towards integrity when it comes to highly visible, ostentatious displays of integrity. But in the background, the incentives are exactly the opposite because it's very easy to convince yourself that what you're doing is the rectitudinous thing if everybody else happens to be doing that thing that isn't, isn't in fact rectitudinous. And I think the incentives are there for everybody to engage in this tiny bit of fudge factor and then convince themselves that they're not engaging in this tiny bit of fudge factor. And that research isn't subject to the replication crisis that's sort of affecting behavioral psychology and economics right now. That study has been replicated in dozens of conditions. So we know for a fact that most people are willing to fudge by just a little bit, is my point. What are you, you said as the degrees of abstraction went up, the, the degree fudge of fudge factor goes up yeah. in kind? Yeah, and that's the only factor, that's the only parameter that alters, so that's the only, um, 
independent variable that altered the dependent variable of the fudge factor level of deception is the degrees of abstraction away from the remuneration. So, so I was the, with you until the Cokes and the dollars had the same degree of theft, because you'd think that. No, because the, the Coke is one degree of abstraction. So people just say, okay, Coke's exactly. a dollar. Yeah. But they're not thinking it's a dollar. They're just thinking it's a Coke. But because the dollar is right there, there's no degrees of abstraction between the person and stealing the money. That's bad. In the same way that, Tim, you would never, ever, ever go into a store and steal a fucking CD off a shelf. But I guarantee you use Napster. And so did I. Because the degree of abstraction away from the deceptive or immoral act allows yeah. us to convince ourselves that it is not as immoral. Hmm. Okay. So, so now fold that in to... So, so if you were, if you asked me, hey, is X in this, like you and I were having an actual conversation and you said, hey, X is in the, is X in this glass. And I knew it was Y, there would probably be a low degree of probability that I would tell you that it's X, right? Because there's a immediate degree of abstraction. There's no degrees of abstraction between the deceptive act and the remuneration where you're handing me money. But let's say I give this glass of Y to Joey. And Joey takes it and then Joey gives it to somebody else who's labeling it. And now there's four degrees of abstraction between me, the manufacturer and you, the consumer. And now you ask me, is there X in this glass? I am more probable to say that there's X in this glass because we've introduced degrees of abstraction away into, sorry, or between, I'm having a stroke, the deceptive act and the remuneration. So that makes saying, sense to me. All right, so let me ask you a clarifying question. Yeah. Are you saying that the intermediaries, in this case, the degrees of abstraction are the people? So like I'm a virtuous brand owner, but the four different entities that are going to finish my goods for me on the way to them and entering the marketplace, they're going to engage in the fudging or I myself am driving the, the dishonesty through the layers of, of intermediation. I think it's deeper and more invidious than that. I think the degrees of... The more degrees of abstraction, the less rigorous you're going to be in performing your statutory duties to ensure that from point A to point Z, the compound and purity and strength has remained consistent. That Those degrees of abstraction function as an incentive. So for the same reason, Tim, that somebody comes into your store and trusts you that there isn't steroids in this bottle, you as the virtuous brand owner are trusting your broker who's finding the ingredients for you, who's trusting the ingredient supplier, and then who's trusting the manufacturer to provision the COAs, or like Joey said, trusting the, the, the Chinese COAs, those degrees of abstraction function as narrative devices for you to convince yourself that somebody else has done the due diligence. And because somebody else has done the due diligence, you don't have to follow that thing all the way down to the rabbit hole to ensure that that compound in its purity and identity is precisely what's on the label claims. And because those degrees of abstraction are interspersed or interceded between you and selling it to the consumer, you don't think that much about it. That's the more invidious part is that they start that level of deception no longer becomes deception. It's just in the background. It's almost as if you're making, if, if we solve for X here, you're making the, a case for companies, whether or not you intend to, that are vertically integrated. Oh yeah. yeah, that's the only way. That is exactly where I would eventually eat is that the only way to actually ensure this is pure vertical integration. That's why companies vertically integrate. So can we dovetail that into or get another, because because Tim's actual point was companies who disclose to you where it's manufactured uh, would be his pick first. So I, I think Kenton, you have the, the obviously the most obvious answer to that is don't have a co-man do it for you, do it yourself so you can control everything. But what about for 
someone like like yourself, Kenson, you don't own a facility or for Drew. Uh, if you're asked, all right, where is core? Where is Dragon Farmer manufactured? I know Drew's standpoint on this is go fuck yourself. And I can't wait to hear him talk about why. But um, oh, <laughs> when you asked that question, I was like, Drew's going to answer this one. Good. But so Kenton you used to do these uh, science Saturdays for, I think it was called for Arms Racing Nutrition. If they asked you, hey, uh, I, I want to know more about your manufacturing. Where is arms race manufactured? Would you, or would you not disclose it? And could you talk a little bit about why? Yeah, I would. And we have Doug, Doug posts the beta samples from dynamic all the time. I don't think it's any mystery that core. America I didn't know that dynamic did arms as well, but okay. So yes, the answer is yes. And then if somebody asked me, how can I trust your supplements? I'd be happy to give them my supplier audit. They want to read okay. through all 50 pages. They're welcome. <laughs> but that that's how I ensure like, the, but here's the issue, and this is something that Tim would say, that's not scalable. Not everybody can create a 150-page supplier audit, tender it to a manufacturer, and then ensure its conformance to the GMPs. That takes a whole host of cognitive machinery that most people don't actually possess. So the problem here, and this is why I was referencing earlier that these people are preferential skeptics, everything that we're problematizing about our industry is a difference not in kind, but degrees with the pharmaceutical industry. So the pharmaceutical industry is covered by 21 CFR 210-211. If you actually look up the differences between 210 and 211 and 111, and Joe would probably know this, they're not that, they're not that different. Like the Venn diagram between 210, 211, and 111, the pharmacovigilance sorry, converges. So we're subject to many of the same standards that, that they are. This conversation that we're having now doesn't happen about prescriptions. I mean, people think that whatever the fuck, there's 5G plants, whatever, 5G chips implanted in prescriptions or vaccines or something, but they don't question that otherwise what's in the vaccine is what's in the vaccine. The point that I'm trying to make is that people are being discriminatory, not based on a dispassionate reasoned analysis of the probability of adulterated supplements. Harkening back to something that Tim said earlier, they're making this prejudicial or discriminatory judgment about our viability as an industry based on our association with things like chiropractic and phrenology and other sort of fringe industries. The, the, the point is you can't, you, you can ask these same questions about pharmaceutical manufacturers and would receive the same answers as us. And a dirty little secret is that a lot of pharmaceutical companies hire co-mans and they're only performing the same sorts of audits that I would perform on somebody that I was contract manufacturing for a dietary supplement. I mean, but, not only that, people will use that to prop up their manufacturer in dietary. So they'll say, oh, we're not supposed to tell you this, but did you know that Tums is also made at our facility? And it's exactly. like, all right, like, cool. Exactly. Nobody's going like, oh, these Tums, I guarantee yeah. Yeah, it's fasting. There's a certain co-man up north in uh, New York that makes a lot of things for Equate, including a lot of their over-the-counter prescription creams and tablets and things like that. And we're in the same facility. They run dietary supplements. Yeah. Is that a bit? Sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. I'll let you finish. Go ahead. No, no, no. That's exactly the point that I'm making. You're just hitting the nail on the head. That's, so if people are that concerned, my point is that if they want to engage in that discussion, I would challenge them to engage in that same discussion about the deodorant that they're putting on their armpits every day and not questioning it, the milk that they're drinking every day without questioning it, the time that they're taking every day without questioning. Do you think oh. that is something of uh, rent seeking uh, by like pharma and et cetera at al to protect their sort of like cozy, we have all, we have the lion's share of the revenue 
the uh, supplement industry is sort of like our unscrupulous little brother that like gets to see at the table for Thanksgiving dinner, but that's about it. Mm-hmm. Could I, okay. I, I'm just going to go and just burn two motherfuckers in the comments down because they've been dying. And of course, just oh, no. we're definitely, go ahead. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just ready for this. Okay. So to, to Ben's point, I mean, not his argument of is go fuck yourself, but you can fuck yourself with a rake. So here's how I go about this. One of the contract manufacturers I use find is, is Drybev. They have GMP certified they're in Dallas, Texas. Go ahead, do your research, look it up, come back to me. My point is when it comes to the weather bee formulation, contra manufacturers, testing, I've seen the same fucking question asked 30 times in chat by the same motherfucker who apparently was an NFL star. There's different levels of this. And even if you want to go to informed choice, NSF certified for sport, do you actually know what any of that shit means? Do you know how thoroughly they test things? Do you know what this is? It's a lot of pay to play. I'm going to be very honest with you. These brands are randomly selected. Like, oh my God, I have an amazing brand. They're paying to have the certification to slap it on the fucking label. It doesn't mean the product is any better or worse. Things that are like collegiate certified to so forth by muscle milk, you know what the difference is? They add maltodextrin to it to make it collegiate compliant because only X amount of percentage of calories can come from protein. It doesn't mean it's a tested, certified, amazing fucking product. So here's the thing. If I give you all this information, I send you CFCs, C of A's, um, batch records, GMPs. I have a site manufacturing packet that I have to have for international customers to import my products. It's 50 pages long in the docket. Go ahead. Do you know what any of that means? You know what? I could ask to see somebody's tax, like, you know, a major corporation's tax returns, like show me them. Okay. They give them to me like, okay, um, what the fuck do I do with this? Right. Do you know what any of it means? Probably not. If you want to look it up, take the time to do diligence. That's great. So in cars, like, oh, should I just take your word for it? Well, quite honestly, a lot of times the industry, that is kind of what has to be there's some policing, self-regulation. And to Ben's point and to Joey's point and to Kenton's point and to Tim's, I don't, know, I don't think Tim is as spicy as us on this one. If I give you this testing certificate, okay, one, even if it's clear as day, are you going to believe that it's true? Like, oh, I looked up the lab. Oh, this seems legit. Or, oh, I can't find that lab. Because a lot of times these third-party testing labs, one of the largest ones and the most thorough ones in the whole country that I use for my third-party testing, they're not exactly out. It's not something that the normal consumer looks up or knows about because it's not something the consumer uses. It's from the industry side of it. So if you get this information, you know, what are you going to do with it? Okay. If you really want to know, surely, like, okay, here it is. And then you're, I, I know for a firsthand it's happened. I've had customers ask me a question on a specific ingredient, like, hey, what's the standardization rate of this, this, and this? I give them the exact amount. They ask a question about the grit. Oh, I think it causes this. Is this true? I'm like, actually, no, here's four studies that refute it. And they still want to fucking argue with me. Like, well, I, I, I lost some hair. So I still think it's this. I'm like, Okay, I don't know what to tell you. I gave you all this information and you're still, you know, once again, trying to fight me on it. So take it or leave it. Here's a test results. If you believe them, no, if great, that's fine. Go to the fucking store. I don't care what store it is. Pick. Hey, I'd like to see the testing results to ensure the food safety. This food I'm buying is safe. I'd like to see the exact amount of nutrient breakdown on, say, this FDA standard. That's laughable too. Well, FDA tested products. Do you realize how much fucking leeway there is in the FDA testing food? There's a positive or negative 20% variance in terms of package weight. There's an allowable amount of bacteria and rat feces and other things in the food supply. Like, do you really trust the fucking FDA? Okay, then it comes to this too. Even if the coman repo comans, I've seen Tren acetate with a fucking Pfizer label on it. That looked legit as hell. It had a little holograph. It was beautiful. But this trip, you know, right? So unless you know the actual ins and outs and true, anybody can put anything on a label. Anybody can make a cool website. Anybody can make a bullshit GMP certification. I know for a fact, I've seen brands that have a GMP logo on their container. I know where they make their stuff. 
and they are not GMP certified. You see where I'm going with this? Okay. You can make a fake GMP certification, but average customer is not going to know where to go. Like, huh, can I get this GMP certification check? Oh, it looks good to me. Right? So the point is, you keep saying, oh, take your fucking word for it. Take your fucking word for it. As to Joey said, you know, if it works like it should, you're not having negative average reactions. You're seeing results. You're not getting sick. You know what? Chances are it's probably a legitimate product. The majority of companies out there aren't doing shady bullshit, trying to intentionally deceive cons consumers, adverse reactions, so on and so forth. You want us to pick out a Fedrin? Okay, because some fat asshole named Corey Stringer had a heart condition in 98 degree weather, dehydrated, and had a fucking died after taking a Fedrin, right? Same thing with Jack 3D, the one adverse reaction talking about this first episode, not going on that path there. The other conditions which were seen, and they blamed the dietary supplement for the guy having, was it the, the Army, Marines, whatever? He like had a heat stroke. Yeah. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. So the thing is, everybody wants to blame the supplement. There are some people intensely doing shady shit. Yes. But that exists in every industry. So I think I'd hit four different heads of the nails here in terms of what do you do with the information once it's given it to you? So I haven't seen any comments. Maybe he can just got his satisfaction of what he was waiting for, but hopefully that answers the question to a degree and gives a little insight of like, okay, you want to have that battle. This is where the front, believe it or not. So. Well, here, I have a thought and I, I actually agree with you on this. Um, often on the flyby, I'm stymied or frustrated by the fact that people will ask me exhausting questions and I'm, I'm like, what? And it has nothing to do with that. It's like, you know, oh, well, I felt this at 2.6 grams, more than 3.2. And then this study said, and it's like, if I answer this question, are you going to take action? Or is this going to just simply tie you up more and make you more confused and cause you to question everything and then take no action? So it could be counterproductive. I agree with that. But here's my, I view this more as like a meta rule. And again, it could be wrong, but I think it's simply the willingness to divulge that is somewhat a meta honesty or transparency signal it could be faked but you know and the five i jokingly likened it to dating someone past the first point of casual dinner or something and then then sort of playfully saying hey where do you live by the way and you go sorry can't tell you you know and and it, it's it's not it, it it's to me it's sort of like if the answer is full stop no then why are they so secretive about that? Even if the, the resultant information isn't actionable for them. You see what I'm saying? That was it. It was, I see your point too, actually. And, and that's a point that really resonates with me because I've seen people tie them into knots agonizing over like which pre-workout to take. And it's like the most impressive and prolific and proficient and accomplished people I know, none of them, like none of them worry about that. It's like, like Ben, what's your joke about like, if you have to think more than 30 seconds about pre-workout? I, if I have to think more than 30 seconds about what I want to take for the day, I just take Nutri-Apri. But you're doing that just... as like a, uh, uh, not uh, paralysis analysis shortcut, right? Yeah. Like you're like, I'm done yeah, yeah. agonizing over this. Like, this is just going to work for what I need it for, you know? But so, I think that's, a, you have a really good point. Like so many of these consumers in this kind of, like it's only these kinds of people asking for testing results are like, well, I felt it at this much. And then I didn't feel it this much. And like, they have these ridiculously in-depth questions that they don't even go buy the product after they ask you and me these questions. My favorite you know? one, when I worked in retail, God forbid, GNC is a store manager. So I'm going to come in, you explain to them, imagine me being GNC, explaining a customer that thoroughly back in the day, even before my knowledge now. And then they, you spend all this time, they ask you 30 different questions and like, well, I'll do, I'll do more. I'm going to go home and do some research because you steer them away from buying that bullshit bottle of fucking, I don't even know what it's like, 
raspberry ketone pills, you recommend that good product that you like and the science behind it. Like, I'm going to do some research. I'm like, okay. So you came in. What was this? What what were you doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They they come in and they're like, oh, I want to buy this product. It's like, oh, wonder what Dr. Oz is pushing now. Because you have this influx of raspberry ketones and influx of, of, you know, Garcinia Gambogia. I'm like, ah, okay. I'll make sure I keep extra on that for a shelf for the Karens today. But with, with that being said, it's like, okay, I, I, you wanted to buy a $70 product that did nothing. I'm giving, I'm telling you to get a product that costs like half as much. And you're like apprehensive about it. Like, oh, I'll go home and do some research. Cause you know, apparently Dr. Oz was right and I'm wrong, but hey, you try to save some money, bro. You do like a spot on Jordan Peterson slash Kermit the Frog when you go into. <laughs> I have many voices. You see the, the, the testing results are, are inconclusive. All right. So. Why is this guy so concerned about why I'm wearing a shirt? Yeah, the guy keeps asking about you in shirts. I think we should all do it shirtless next pants? time. Maybe. But, Drew, see. where was your shirt made? Yeah. I, I tell you, but um, you see, I can't. Right. It's uh, because of child labor laws. Proprietary. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had a couple like oddball questions all that are in different areas i mean we had uh tributerin as a new ingredient or delta 8 thc which was an interesting conversation that that uh drew seems pretty uh interested in getting on too i don't know if you guys had anything you really wanted to get to today we're rounding out on like the last uh are there any uh fun questions in the chat that aren't like whatever aren't uh, about shirt origins <laughs> I'll be really yeah. honest with you. Rage. There's I haven't been monitored, you know. I uh there's really there's really not a lot of stuff in here to go over. Um oh turkesterone. And now this is something I get asked about a lot on Instagram as well, which I assume that means Tim, you get asked it too. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we can does, thank uh Garrett for that. We know where that's coming from. Yeah. Does anyone here have any specific thoughts on turkesterone? Usually when it comes to like natural anabolics, Joby really lights up for some reason. Uh, I actually looked this up earlier on PubChem and I'm looking at it. What is it? Uh, so we're looking at this thing and it's got like a cholesterol-like side chain. Mm-hmm. It's 5-alpha reduced. Cool. It's got a 3-beta-hydroxyl group. It's got a 2-beta-hydroxyl group. It's got a 6-oxo group. This could be some sort of anti-aromatase kind of thing. I can see that. Um, other than that, I would say that this is definitely, if it, if it were to have some sort of steroidal activity, it would require cytochrome P450, side chain cleavage, and it would, it could aromatize because it does have that two hydroxyl group, but it looks like it would probably just be something that would be more dry than anything else. But I don't know. We gotta we gotta understand the bioavailability of this. Is it pure turkesterone? Is it a glycoside saponin? Does it need to be like fermented by the gut bacteria? I mean, I don't know. I'm 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 not too wild about it because every time you know you see different ads and stuff talking about you know natural legal steroids, we're talking about shit like this that you know doesn't really have near as much of an impact as an actual anabolic steroid. Hmm. You mean stuff that's what? What's the what's the brand? that's like Crazy Mass or some shit that has like their their legit steroid name things that have nothing but like vitamin mix in it. I think it's something completely atrocious. It's not that bad, but yeah. <laughs> well, doesn't this sort of like get bundled in with laxogenin? And that's my impression of it. You know, as a molecule, uh, 
I will say that the one paper I read, the Russians were very enamored with this when they were doing all that stuff with the, the uh, ectosterone uh, derivatives. Uh, I've heard that it's wildly cost ineffective and it requires a big dose. And uh, Ben, you weren't, you were not quite getting, so there's a guy, um, Garrett Hobbs. We talk Let's about talk him. about him. I like Garrett. Yeah. He's bringing out this product at a very high dose. That's why I thought, so he's oh. been using it. Uh, he's got a cool blend. It's got like Pico two and, um, but it has turkesterone at 400 milligrams as part of his forthcoming product. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I think that's where the big influx of intrigue is coming from. Uh, I, I, I tend to like anything that obsessed nutrition comes out with. Yeah. Thank you. For Stru the, for Structurally the five alpha hydroxylaxogen looks more preferable. Let me look up regular laxogen and see the difference. There's a difference. In general, any... I was to say, in general, anything that the the Russians are interested in uh, perks me up. <laughs> Actually, both of these laxatives look decent. Well, they, I mean, there, there are a couple of phytoectosteroids that have shown some benefit, like, uh, what was it, 20-hydroxyectosterone or ectosone. That yeah. one, you know, once again, you're looking at a decent-sized dose, and if you can do anything that's going to help absorption, you're going to be better off doing that. But, I mean, it's they're they're just not going to pay off in the same way that that other hormones like this would are these suppressive in the same way that like SARMs would be i, have I don't no think idea. They, they give negative intubate i my impression is okay so like if you have like apigenin as like a phytoprogestin right mm -hmm. um does not cause it doesn't competitively inhibit progesterone but it can bind to the progesterone receptor. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're willing to draw that, build that bridge from, you know, phytoprogestins, which are more common in the plant world to phytoandrogens, which are comparatively less common, um, you have nominal activation of the androgen receptor or like um, laxogen to me, Joey, you correct me if I'm wrong, looks more like uh, DHEA. So it has sort of, multivariate yeah. uh binding affinity but um you know that you can like again nominally bring these things online and touch them without either inhibiting the actual substance they're impersonating not to because the ic would be, be lower and it doesn't cause uh negative feedback inhibition for that reason because it doesn't feed back upwards as like um you know overriding like ben like anything that would be suppressive to me is at least putatively more potent than the thing that it's overriding. Right. Yes. Yeah. So that this is why you run into the wall here. What I think Joey's thing is either usually twofold, either absorption or dose or both. Yeah. Because to get any sort of reasonable activity, you need a really big dose. Yeah. The other issue is partially binding affinity too. So something may reasonably mimic in terms of its chemical backbone, some compound that's physiologically active in the body, but it could have poor binding affinity, in which case it doesn't matter how much you pump into the body. If it's not binding to the androgen receptor sufficiently, it's not going to elicit all of the androgen receptors effects that wanted effects on nitrogen retention and therefore muscle protein synthesis. I know yeah. that we originally, I'm sorry. 
I was just going to say, and that's the issue is that it's it's very difficult to disterminate those two issues. So the androgenicity of a compound, which is directly correlated to its binding affinity to the androgen receptor, and then its impact on muscle protein synthesis. Those two are tightly correlated, but they're, uh, the tertiary issue associated with that androgenicity is the negative feedback loop that eventually suppresses your endogenous production. And though you can't, those are hard to pull apart. So like, and there's ways around it. So like Joe was mentioning that, I think you're talking about Turkosterone where it has six oxo, right? So it mm-hmm. could theoretically be an aromatase inhibitor. You shouldn't smash estrogen into the ground either. Like there's a point of diminishing returns when it comes when it comes to aromatase inhibitors that at dose X, right, they may be anabolic, but dose Y, you need estrogen for a whole host of processes, not least of which being glycogenesis, muscle uh, skeletal muscle protein synthesis, like protein kinase B is heavily mediated by estrogen. So it's there, there's no free lunches. In other words, what I'm trying to say in, in some cases, like if you want that effect, bite the bullet and take steroids, which I'm not advocating, but in our space, there's very few free lunches when it comes to these like natural anabolics, like Joe was saying, and a better natural anabolic. And I'm not trying to denigrate anybody's uh, product that they're coming out with probably food and a rigorous exercise regime is going to have a more proliferative effect on skeletal muscle than something like ectosterone. Uh, I, I know at the beginning, of, when we planned this, uh, the first episode, we kind of all agreed to not talk about our own brands and products, but I, I would kind of highlight, uh, when you're talking about the bioavailability of products and the actual dosages being delivered. Um, when Joey came out with flight, I remember looking at the ingredient list and thinking, yeah, but all that stuff doesn't make it past the gut. And then realizing that was, I think, one of the first products you guys introduced, DR caps, which actually secure the delivery of some products that previously like colostrum we also have BioGrow. uh in in the past we were all trained to just think uh this stuff doesn't actually make it and you don't get the benefits here but uh flight was one recovery slash anabolic-esque product that i f- i felt seriously and i don't say that about supplements as a supplement reviewer i am actually not all that impressed by a lot of supplements uh i mean that good I'll let Tim take this one away. <laughs> Flight yeah. seems to bind directly to my hypothalamic pituitary boner axis. Yeah. Nominal pathway. Yeah. yeah. I, like, I, that, that's like my running joke. It's like, well, I, you know, it seems to be uh, mildly restorative and mildly anabolic, but uh, libido, you know, this flight. So this is a really funny story, Tim. I don't think you were involved in this. Uh, there's this guy, Nick Price, who works at a who works at a brick and mortar store down in uh, Kentucky, I think. Um, and he and I started taking flight really early on from Joey. And Joey was like, you know, please post your your thoughts and everything. And we were posting like our recovery and stuff. And like a week and a half in, Nick messaged me privately. He's like, I'm getting this thing. I think it's from flight. And I don't know if you're getting it too. And he was like really nervous to say like, like, are you getting a lot of boners from this product? And I was like, thank Christ someone else is asking me because I thought it was just me. Um, so yeah, I, I would, I would agree. It was, it's a very, it's very strong in that department. Hilariously. Okay. Inexplicably, you know. <laughs> well, obviously it's doing something there. I mean, well, part of what's in it is actual ground up bovine testicles. Yeah. I and, think it's the organ you know, extract. 
you know, if you if if you've got your testicles in one hand and you've got these bull testicles in another hand, tell me which one of these do you think has more testosterone in them? Ladies and gentlemen, this is supplement marketing at its finest, right here. <laughs> put your balls in your hand, folks, and then put bull balls in another hand, and tell me which one's going to have more testosterone. It's certainly going to be the bull. That is an if, experiment. If I could ethically harvest bull shark testicles, I would have done that. But you know. That's that's a clip for later. I'm I'm not taking note of that. Cool. Well, so uh, one topic that I think we can close things out on that really got you guys fired up when we were doing the pre-call was this article from Natural Products Insider. CHPA makes case for more uh, more fully integrating supplements into U.S. healthcare. Um, and so I and let's not talk about health insurance too much because Kenton's here, but. Uh, <laughs> this really got you guys fired up and I, I, I kind of, I remember like hushing you guys a little because I really wanted to talk about it on the podcast. So if any one of you guys wants to lead off with that, I, th- I, th- I think that's a huge conversation we could talk about the efficacy of this stuff. Yeah. So this is when I was saying that people were prejudicially or preferentially skeptical, this is precisely what I mean. When you look at the range of services for which there is not a robust evidentiary record, covered in most insurance plans. It is almost inarguable that many dietary supplements are better prophylactics or preventative modalities than the treatments that are covered in insurance plans. Like for example, I don't give a fuck who asks me chiropractic. There is absolutely no evidence that chiropractic does anything. And I mean that literally anything other than treating some forms of acute low back pain, like the rest of their like backy cracky bullshit where they put some hot girl in yoga pants on the YouTube channel for like the ASMR benefit is doing nothing. The whole premise of chiropractic is fucking ridiculous and it has an anemic evidentiary record. And yet the chiropractic industry is larger than our industry. People call themselves chiropractic doctors and insurance companies are completely willing to pony up to pay for that insurance. Heart stents, like, you know, like when, when somebody has a, a stent inserted in their valve, absolutely no evidence whatsoever that it reduces 30-day mortality as, comp- as compared to people who do not have stents performed. ACL surgery, very poor evidentiary record that leads to any, any better outcome, no matter how you slice or dice outcome. So in terms of like voluntary contractile force, total mobility, knee, like later knee failure, no evidence whatsoever. Insurance companies pony up for that. There was this famous article in The Lancet that absolutely destroyed a number of these surgical interventions or treatment modalities for which there are anemic evidentiary records, but they are institutionalized and considered fully legitimate and therefore backed by insurance companies and compensated. The argument that dietary supplements shouldn't be, if you're strictly comparing evidentiary records between what our products have been demonstrated to do as potential treatment modalities for a wide range of pathological states as compared to what fucking chiropractic does, which is nothing. Like you can fit the amount of like um, beneficial effects for the entire chiropractic industry on my fucking pinky, which is absolutely nothing. And yet insurance companies have no issues whatsoever approving compensation for insurance companies. So why shouldn't dietary supplements be part of an insurance plan? The conspiracy theorist in me wants to bring up, Kenton, that the reason the insurance companies cover all that is because it actually keeps you sick and does nothing for you and makes them more money. That was, I don't know, that's, I don't think that. So, according to them, shouldn't we be at the top of the list? 
Yeah. <laughs> well, Ben, that, that was that's actually sort of adjacent. I know you're you're kind of being funny, but that's adjacent to my point about rent seeking from the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah. Before, you know, and I think whenever there is scandal in terms of label veracity or whatever in that industry, it's quietly covered up rather than shot it from the rooftops. But I do want to point out this is something we talked about the pre-call. There was a point where discussing things as innocuous as vitamin C in the context of COVID would get you kicked off YouTube. Yeah, uh, and then, yeah our stream just got just, just uh, no. <laughs> yeah, gotta spell it. Uh, but, and then even to this day, I think if you mention COVID in an Instagram caption, you get that sticker, the CDC yeah. sticker. But so there's this like insane, uh, what's that snake that eats its own tail? Ouroboros. Uh, Ouroboros, yeah, yeah. There's like it's insane Orbos thing happening where um, people will be told, hey, supplements are bullshit, you know, go to a legitimate medical provider. Uh, and yet we're not, we're not saying the word cure. And, I, you know, no one is, honestly, no, no sane, uh, well-intentioned supplement provider. But, but then they get fed into the medical industry, which is, you know, obviously has great intentions. I know a ton of people, my, my sister is in training to be a doctor. And then they'll get discharged if they have COVID with oftentimes uh, what looks like, uh, you know, your typical order at a supplement store where then they'll get discharged and all of a sudden vitamin D, C, zinc, melatonin, uh, once they've been sort of like rubber stamped by the clergy class are now, you know, passed down from Mount High in, on a tablet as ordained, you know, as perfectly unambiguous goods. So I guess it depends on where the, the recommendation originates, but I find it ludicrous that like, like once a doctor broaches the topic of vitamin C, it's seen as unimpeachable, but as advice from your supplement store, it's seen as, you know, grounds for disbarment from, from YouTube. So I just get frustrated by that. That speaks back to the whole like reputation our industry has, you know, and it's seen as like illegitimate. Um, but Wait, like I said, one. Oh, sorry, Tim. Uh, well, I was going to say one. So let's, Let's try to do a comparative analysis and then reduce down to first principles and identify what something like chiropractic possesses as an industry and what do we lack. So I can't go to university and I can't be approved as a supplementologist by the College of Supplementologists. And what a College of Supplementologists would do would function as the institutional apparatus by which we could all outsource our individual concerns about legitimation to that institutional body who then lobbies on our behalf. And the AHPA is not that. So because these industries, let's just not industry, let, let's say this modality, chiropractic, for which there is, I, again, no evidence whatsoever that it does almost anything. Because it has been ingrained in public consciousness, because it's pseudo-medical, because there are colleges of chiropractic at legitimate educational institutions, that institutional apparatus functions to legitimate a modality, which is by definition illegitimate. We don't have that because we have nothing like that. And until we have something like that, there will be no way to bridge that legitimacy gap that you're very astutely identifying Tim. Because what happens when the doctor tells you to take vitamin D is that's a prescription. And because there's a whole architecture, there's a medical institutional architecture buttressing his opinion. He went to well, him and her or they, whatever. The doctor went to school for eight years. They practiced, or sorry, they were uh, taught at a legitimate institution. They are backed by a college of physicians in your local area, like the College of Physicians of Alberta or Canada, et cetera. 
the reason why people don't question the doctor's advice, but they question our GMPs is we lack that institutional apparatus behind here, like a whole architectonic that in the background, people can outsource their skepticism to. We lack that and until we establish something like that. We'll never bridge that. That's why I said it's like the clergy, you know, it, it functions almost as like a pseudo religious order. Um, yeah, yeah. And we don't, we're not, we don't have this, the shared protection like they do. No, we don't have anything like that. Which yeah, but even that, that shared protection, isn't that just like a weird anomaly that we just as a society have like come to accept that? There's plenty <laughs> of people that are suspect of the medical industry and there's plenty of times where it's warranted. There's other times where it's not. But, you know, they, they seem to have this halo that is just unremovable, unremovable. Yeah. This whole trust the science thing. I can tell you how many times we've heard that and it's just been hypocritical garbage the entire time. Yeah, that's the problem is we don't have that. And that's, that's what I was saying earlier, Joey, when, when I induce these people to question the milk that they're drinking to the same degree as the supplements that they're taking. They should. As they should, exactly. That's exactly what they fucking should. You should, but they don't because if you did, you couldn't live your life. So people choose their battles, but we, because we, we lack this institutional apparatus, we are an easy target. People can choose us as the battle. Hmm. Good point. I mean- and even when people do question that, that quality of food, like when you think like, like what the health that was, I mean, remember, remember that whole craze of watching that movie or if you got, I mean, I think I brought this up last episode, but you guys need to watch uh super size me one was like an exercise in calorie counting, but super size me two is an incredible video about the chicken industry. And I, like the chicken industry is insane. Once you jump into it, it sounds ridiculous. It sounds like conspiracy theory, but like it is it is so disgusting and dirty but those videos are usually brushed to the side i feel like like actually questioning the source of your actual is that food. the easter egg of the episode mentioning chickens every episode because last yeah. time we <laughs> yeah, yeah i was realizing this this is deja vu right now i saw joey spark is an all right it's magic about yeah that. exactly but it's, i mean it, it's very parallel it's very parallel <laughs> like <laughs> like all these marketing gimmicks that people like to bring up uh you know you talk about free range uh, chickens, all they have to have is access to like a five inch window to the sun, right? Um, It's just as bad there, but you know, what's the percentage of, sounds ridiculous. What's the percentage of food consumers versus supplement users that are, uh, you know, questioning their own sources? So let me ask a question, like how, let's do a thought experiment. What What sort of institutional apparatus, and I'm not just, and I'm not just being circumlocutory by combining those two words. I mean, like the institution and the mechanism by which it effectuates the same. What would that look like in our space so that insurance companies would approve some sort of prophylactic treatment modality when it comes to dietary supplements? And how would it not be subject to my earlier concerns about Amazon? You're going to have to repeat that question. Okay, so like, <laughs> I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm thinking about what they could do. Maybe that'll, it'll be more illustrative. So people compile monographs all the time on ingredients, right? And a monograph is essentially a stamp of legitimacy. Like, hey, this ingredient does this. So if you're applying to Health Canada for what's called a natural health product number, if you choose an ingredient that has been monographed, so it's in some sort of compendium or formulary, uh, the natural health product directorate will essentially just rubber stamp it. You can claim whatever in that monograph. So what to me an institutional apparatus would look like is that 
we put some sort of excise tax on dietary supplements, like let's say a two to 3% additional tax on every dietary supplements that purchased that goes to this institutional apparatus, this institute or this institution, sorry. And the institutional apparatus that this institution erects is a very robust and systematic monographing process where the ingredients that Joey and I would use or Drew and I would use have monographs by which we can make legitimate claims. And in those monographs, are the structure function claims for which those can be prescribed and provided that your supplementologist or whatever conforms to the conditions of the monograph, the insurance company compensates you. Now that my friend is far more evidentiary than a fucking chiropractor doing back. You're practice. making too much sense. <laughs> You're telling the FDA essentially how to do their jobs. And if they've got to do all this compending compendium of monographs and all these things, that might make too much sense. And then they might have to do more work. They might have to get more employees and really stop looking and pointing fingers at everybody else and start pointing them at themselves. Yeah, you're right, Joey. I fucked up. That's my, that's my. <laughs> Sorry. Unfortunately, that's not how this world works. Cause I know if I go to the store and I eat my free range chicken that has a five inch window to the sun and I eat it and I get fucking hookworms, I'm going to get sick and go through my hookworms. And a week later, I'm going to go back to the grocery store and buy the same fucking chicken. Yes. Okay. This is such an excellent fucking point. This is the reason why I love this point. That is exactly right. So, this, and this is my point, Tim, by the way, about degrees. Hope they got the worms out. You know. So, the, like a, a company like Tyson, Tyson Foods, right, has a vast contracting network for their farms. And there are many, many nodes in this network that are all presumably subject to USDA standards with respect to harvesting poultry flesh, right? But you as a consumer are so many degrees of abstraction away from that. that the, and the deception is so invidiously embedded that there's no way to Joey's point that you could ever make a conscious decision to avoid that farmer's chicken. The reason why we get shit on as an industry is because a supplement is supplemental to the diet. And most people who are introducing these exogenous substances can easily identify like, this is the thing that I, that I introduced into my regime. They say, this is what gave me diarrhea. But like Joe said, there's this built-in level of acceptance with food. Hey, I ate terrible Indian yeah. food. It gave me righteous diarrhea. I'm going to make precisely the same mistake in two weeks but they won't make it about dietary supplements because it's easily identifiable. There's a label and a name and a brand associated with that deleterious effect. It's such a good point about how irrational people are. Do you guys remember, um, you guys know about the, the brand of dairy products, Fairlife? I was thinking about this the whole conversation, yeah. And like, there was that incidence of like alleged animal cruelty and it was like hot on Instagram for a while where people were like boycott Fairlife. Yeah. And they issued a statement. They're like, hey, we have 17 farms. As far as we can tell, this was an isolated incident of one employee who has since been terminated on one farm, you know, that, that has been addressed and is not representative of how we choose. And like, I remember like at the time, like several members of my staff were like, oh, it's gross, like boycott Fairlife. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to keep drinking Fairlife because at no point do I think the company was like, hey, we should, you know what I mean? Like, and that probably goes on everywhere, but people are so quick to ascribe blame, you know, that, that's your point, right? Like, I mean, I guess the fair life is maybe an example of people taking some sort of impotent action against the company, but I even thought that was misguided and, and they're the ones who had the infraction, you know, it was so, like, um, like, uh, like per case of like shooting a messenger or something, you know, let's, let's, I, let's, even if like, let's say that there was 
a totally pellucid mechanism by which customers could ascertain the quality of supplements. How many people, if they found out that there was like, let's say, triple the amount of lead allowable, not under like Prop 65, but under the FDA standards. I this question every day, by the way. Would, would actually stop, yeah, exactly. Would actually stop taking a dietary supplement that they like. Let's say they find a dietary supplement, it addresses their precise needs, and they find out that cruelty is involved somewhere in the manufacturing chain, that it's in some way adulterated. What percentage do you think actually stops taking it? Five, mm-hmm. seven, 10 tops? Well, it's like someone asked me pointedly the other day, they're like, does KSM cause anhedonia? And like, I led them on this discourse and finally was like, does it? Like, are you experiencing anhedonia? Because then for you, it might, you know, like in which case I would recommend discontinue, you know, but like just saying that, saying KSM causes anhedonia is like a lot. The, the burden of proof is very high there, you know? And, and um, so not to discount anyone's individual experience, but but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to overturn something like that. The Fairlife thing, I, uh, I'm a huge consumer of Fairlife. Yep. And so for, for me, it was like a big deal because I also love animals to death. And so hearing that my favorite dairy producer who produces like a very specific product that you don't see very often being the lower yeah, there's, reduced there's not sugar. Like a good replacement. Uh, right. Yeah. So I, I obviously was pretty concerned about it because i don't want to support animal cruelty by any means but when i looked into it it was because you you you, the story you told not only that they don't actually own the farm that produces the milk right it's a it's someone they source it from it's an employee of a source of theirs i continue to purchase fair life especially because of how well they handled the situation i mean to my employees they handled it well they were like yeah "We, we take this very seriously we're taking action you know and they also introduced new practices to uh, prevent that from occurring again with new farms that they're using. And so it, it, like we see this happen every here and there in supplements. We see a recall or we see something happen that's bad. If a supplement company was that proactive, hey, this is what happened. This is the manufacturer it happened at. This is the things that we're doing to prevent this from happening again. I would purchase more of their products. Yeah. Like, well, that kind of brings us to bet on the jockey, not the horse, but. <laughs> I, I just sorry go ahead i was gonna to say to tim when you're talking about the the customers claiming they're experiencing anhedonia which is just so vastly unlikely <laughs> like it's almost incomprehensible how unlikely that is but i was gonna say if only we had some values neutral replicable standardized methodology by which we produce determinations about outcomes and if only it was called science and if only that there was a way to access this sort of information on some sort of worldwide global network, but that doesn't exist. So there's no way that that customer- Well, not science, capital S, trust the science, but yes, the rather science. science. Yeah, just you know, rigorous, uh, whatever, bench work, like we said before. But no, I guess my only concern with the regulatory thing, as far as how do we get supplements elevated for insurance is like, once thing a thing becomes a clergy, then it becomes something from which you can be like ejected. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that is like, there are stories of rogue doctors who don't uh, embrace conventional orthodoxy and whatever like mainline therapy. And then they're like essentially disbarred, you know, to, to use the term from the law world. But, um, 
I do. I simultaneously hate the fact that we're looked at as like the, you know, stepchild of pharma and whatever biochem, but it, it affords us a degree of like, I don't know. Uh, we don't have to adhere to any orthodoxy. Right. So it's both like cool and bad. Yeah. So like, I don't know how to like redress that concern because there's not like an easy answer there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like yeah. at some point you can't say to people, maybe, maybe like I got into a fight with my sister that like ended in tears at like a family thing because my sister's a pharmacist who's going back to med school. But I mentioned that I did not think that T4 was the prudent mainline therapy for people with um, hypothyroidism if, you know, like after a certain dose, the, the temperatures and stuff weren't improving because I mentioned that women in particular struggle with the conversion. I was saying this from someone who had no pharmaceutical experience. So I didn't realize how heterodox that was. It was to the point where like I had blasphemed, right? <laughs> like, you don't understand. I went to school, like all those arguments. And like, look, like my sister's not like a bad faith actor. Like she's defending the virtuousness of what she felt her field and their combined clinical experience. But like, I was coming at it from, like, so I was like, why are you so upset? Like, this is crazy. But I didn't realize I, I had challenged like one of their sacred precepts. Yeah. Right. So I, we're way off topic, Ben. I'm no, sorry. You, you, you I, would... I don't know if analogy will make sense, but have you ever seen um, like a cosmobiologist? So people who are responsible for postulating what life could look like on other planets. Yeah. Or, there's a guy at MIT that shines red light on stuff and sees like what it turns into. Yeah. It's yeah. Cool. yeah. It's cool. So one of the reasons why this fascinates me uh, epistemologically is that this is going to be super esoteric. So I'm going to try to render this in the most comprehensible non-Kenton fashion that I can, but we're, we're constrained by, we're constrained by a, the paradigm of life that on our planet is associated with a certain morpho, morphological toolkit, right? Like when you think of the span of life on this planet, there has been an excessively narrow range of morphology, right? The morphological toolkit has remained consistent over millions of years, right? The basic body plan. And so it makes it difficult for us to postulate what organisms without that body plan might look like on other planets. Like my brother and I, who's a mechanical engineer and a fucking neck beard to the maximum, also got in some sort of argument like that about whether or not there could be diamond based organisms on other planet and what their metabolism. Yeah, this is like the, why do all aliens look the same argument? Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. So the, the point being is that institutions reproduce the conditions by which they're reproduced. So in other words, there are a set of institutional assumptions associated with any apparatus of power. And the function of those, that apparatus of power is to constantly reproduce itself. So in uh, capitalism, for example, capitalism reproduces the condition for its own reproduction. Pharmacy as a body of like a body of knowledge that exists out there in informational space, one of its functions is to reproduce itself. And so it's very difficult to have a conversation with somebody like a pharmacist about something like that, because you're not just questioning an individual modality, Tim, you're questioning the conditions by which pharma pharmacy reproduces itself, which is at base its legitimacy. And that legitimacy is conferred by that institution that I earlier referred to. That's why conversations like that are so difficult. And that's also why we have such difficulty reproducing our own legitimacy is we don't have a thing 
whose function it is to reproduce our legitimacy. Wait, can you say these things, things have asexual reproduction? <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. These what things, they, they butt off more clones of themselves. These, yeah. these things, these institutions, they don't fuck. No, they don't fuck at all. <laughs> I mean, Kenton, I have something you're going to love. There's, yeah. there's this very esoteric bit of institutional sociological thing. So it's right up your uh, alley. It's called Pornell's, P-O-U-R-N-E-L-L-E-A, Pornell's Iron Law of insta- or Bureaucratic Organization. Bureaucratic, excuse me. There will be two kinds of people in any sufficiently large bureaucratic organization. First, there will be those that are devoted to the goals of the organization. Example would be a dedicated classroom teacher or uh, in an educational bureaucracy or many of the engineers and launch technicians and scientists at NASA. And the second second group will be dedicated to the organization itself. So in the first example, the administrators that sit atop the teachers or the NASA administrative staff that sits atop the engineers. Pornell's iron law states that in every case, the second group will gain and keep control of the organization at the expense of the first group. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because it reproduces the conditions for its own existence. That's what in other words, the administrative uh, administration, uh, institutional capture, I should say, it, uh, happens from the administration level. And then their job is to defend the status quo. You guys are all saying the same thing, but there's actually a guy that like enshrined this as a rule. Yeah. That's why, yeah, that's why it's that. And the fact that we lack that, that sort of institutional apparatus is why we will probably never as an industry secure that status as being a part of an insurance plan. I've heard of some wild insurance plans in other countries actually that have something like that, but they're more like traditional medicinal systems. But I, I doubt that we'll have anything like that in the West. We just don't, ha- we don't have an apparatus of centralized power that can effectuate any sort of collectively negotiated aim. And I think also when in countries where it's like not as first world developed, where you have like um, Ayurveda and TCM, there could be like a local doctor who's like, hey, you have a fever, like go, go ingest this plant, you know, and like, that's like the anti-pyretic plant. Yeah, yeah. take some shark nuts. But I think in those, this is a point that I've been wanting to make, and I didn't know where to introduce it is, and I think Joey said something like this, and this is your Tim point, Tim, I don't think you're being as literal as I'm about to be, but in our culture, medicine has become a new religion and doctors have become shamans. And and what I mean by that is in traditional cultures, shamans had a dyadic role. They both had, um, they had a sort of propedeutic rule. They taught the people about certain cultural mores and norms, et cetera. And so they had a symbolic status, but they, they also had an actual treatment status, right? And then we went through a long period, uh, especially during the Industrial Revolution, where medicine doesn't have that status. Like at, at a certain point, <laughs> dentists and phrenologists and chiropractors were all considered sort of this quackery because we didn't have a sufficient amount of institutional knowledge about the way that the body works. Over the past 50 years, that's completely changed. And now, ironically, doctors have reassumed this place in our culture as both individuals who are propedeutic, they function to teach us things, anything that a doctor tells you is is automatically legitimate, right? Mm-hmm. And then they have this other like treatment modality function. Because we exist in their penumbra, we're by definition, like via negativa, we are illegitimate. It's not, I don't think it's anything that we do specifically. It's that medicine in our culture has been so valorized. And because on a regulatory basis, we have been defined in absence of the fact that we're not medicine that will never become that legitimate. 
I really think that that, and that, by the way, I also think that's very deleterious that medicine has been valorized in that way. Yeah. Cause anything that doesn't strictly speaking conform to the norms of that is written off as like a, a, a attack on the edifice itself. Yeah. And that's us. And that's literally what supplements are. That is us. It's like, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, I'm an admirer, but not a practitioner of jujitsu, but like the same thing that happened with like the Gracie's were like, for a while there was like no innovation was allowed because like they're like we are the arbiters of what is jujitsu like we made it but then like it kind of like splintered into all these like sub-disciplines where they were like heel hook specialists and whatever that like they had denounced so finally it got like out from underneath the huge shadow of the gracies and now there's like legitimate jujitsu places that aren't gracie jujitsu but that took a long time and there was like lawsuits and stuff mm. And that, I mean, that's not some, uh, you know, dowdy, big institutional apparatus like medicine. You know what I mean? That's jujitsu. Yeah, but it's, I think, the same, same exact same process. It, I think it reminds me similar to like CrossFit owning that name of that brand. And it's a perfect example. That's actually, I'm closer to that. Same thing's happening. People are defecting. Yep. Yeah. And uh, like one of my favorite cl- uh, boxes close to me uh, is now a strength conditioning specialist. Right, because they don't have to spend however much it is to use the word CrossFit, which is, I mean, mm-hmm. hilarious. How much money you have to spend to have a CrossFit box? It started as seven fifty a year, and it's now up to like three or four thousand. So, like, depending yeah. on when you got in, you know, your grandfathered in at mm-hmm. your rate. But so this the final point that I'd make. Maybe I'll I'll put a bow tie in everything I've said. And this is <laughs> I'm not I don't want to get pilloried for being like a postmodern heretic. I'm not questioning the validity of the notion of objective truth, but. There's a, a philosopher and a hermeneuticist that I study. His name's Hans George Gadamer, and he distinguishes between two things. He distinguishes between verisimilitude, and a verisimilitude is a uh, how should I say this? Verisimilitude is a concept that denotes when a state of affairs matches the description of those state of affairs, right? Okay. Truth, on the other hand, is an event. And what he means by an event, and there's a specific German word for the event, he means that truth is produced under certain conditions. And the way that truth is produced under those conditions is parameterized by people who are, this gets kind of complicated, but pre-designated as the arbiters of truth. So truth is an event that's produced. Who produces it? It's by individuals who are pre-designated as those who are capable of producing the truth. And our space has been designated as illegitimate by a group of people like federal federal regulators, et cetera, who are pre-designated as responsible for producing the truth. And so I don't mean to be fatalistic, but I just don't know how we're ever going to get out of that, what Gadamer calls a hermeneutic circle. So like you were saying earlier, Tim, people have made up their minds. I've had that same experience and that's anecdata where you had, so remember USP Labs, there used to be a steroid company called USP Labs. And for the fucking life of me, I could not convince my own parents that I did not work for some rinky dink steroid manufacturer that they found on the internet <laughs> Like for 10 years that I worked there because to them, all supplements were steroids. Yeah, because you used to that, type in the wrong URL and you would go exactly. to it. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. My point being that event, like truth as an event in that way has already occurred and is so constantly occurring and being applied to our space. I don't know how to short circuit that mechanism. And my, my fucking brand is that the same name as an actual fucking yes. gear dealership in the UK. Do you know how much questions I get? Like, can I get a price list? I'm like, that's not us. 
<laughs> so math is 39.99 <laughs> so yeah like what do you what do you do about that like how do you short circuit the production of truth that gracie jiu-jitsu is the best how do you short circuit the production of truth like the event of truth that only crossfit designated gyms are practicing the orthodoxy of crossfit like how do you it seems to me you can't that that isn't that it isn't manufactured it, it's only organic where that tide seems to turn we have in forthcoming generation that has essentially been lied to by every big Everyone. organization that could you know the military industrial complex the, the the modern banking banking or finance uh industry like we saw that with the the housing uh bubble you know sort of like the never-ending war uh so they have no institutional trust so you're getting a lot of skeptics coming up in the generation that's like younger than 30, I would say, uh, because they're old enough to have lived through them, but like not so young that like they, you know, like 9-11, they don't understand it or whatever they're. So it's like everyone that's like slightly younger than me, I think they have a lot of institutional distrust. Unfortunately, I think they're applying that distrust to eating Tide Pods and wearing 90s jeans. I think that's like. The- yeah, I don't think it's necessarily fruitful, but uh it's there. Yeah. So I don't mean to be a miser. I just sounded like the oldest motherfucker on the face of the planet. I've had the worst view of Zoomers. I don't know why. They just drive me nuts. <laughs> that, that's totally, couldn't be but less. What's weird is that the, the uh, generation that holds power right now is reluctant to relinquish it. Like if you notice our elected officials are getting older on average, you know, yeah. So like, well, that's because the merit, like the system of meritocracy, like a paradigm of meritocracy, which dictates the individual with the highest degree of fitness for a task is the one who attains the highest degree of reward was instantiated when they were our age. And that system hasn't altered. So they've been able to persuade themselves that they were meritocratically assigned their position and they meritocratically keep their position. But the problem with meritocracy is just like medicine or finance, it reproduces the own conditions for its existence. And what that's this is the done. climbing the ladder and then pulling exactly. it up behind you. Yeah, exactly. But then convincing yourself that pulling up the ladder was in and of itself like a benevolent act. Yeah, no, it wasn't. It's just a mechanism by which you reproduce your own existence. And so no wonder these fucking kids are eating Tide Pod and spending 99% of their time on TikTok. So we're rounding out on two and a half hours. And before Kenton goes too far down the, the road of meritocracy, because I've done this for like six hours with him before. Um, <laughs> I got to say, we got to cut this off for the next episode, but this has been an awesome, another awesome two and a half hours. Uh, chat was loving the episode. Don't listen to what they were saying. And uh, I, I have to thank you guys again for coming out. I mean, is there anything you guys want to touch on? Like, I know sometimes you guys hold some topics, but I think we were pretty exhaustive on the stuff that we talked about. Now I think next time we fun to dive into one that's kind of in our space, kind of not in our space. And it was on the notes, the Delta eight stuff. I think that'll be I, a- <laughs> I do have to tell you guys that in preparation for tonight's podcast, I went out and bought a whole bunch of gas station Delta eight and <laughs> took a bo- I took a bolus dose of it before my workout today. And I did not know if I was going to make it to this podcast. Yeah, I texted me. And my I'm impressed. I, I, I was at the gym for a long time because I was afraid to drive my truck. Like I was, I took, I mean, I took like one gummy last week 
I took two and then today I took a hundred milligrams and it was like, that was the threshold for me. And I don't know. I don't care what anyone says. That stuff is not like it's it, it's whatever strong. legal is like, it's, it shouldn't be that like kids shouldn't be able to buy that. <laughs> Can I take my, my key takeaway from this episode? Yes, please. That Drew said, butt fucker. I literally think that's so funny. <laughs> literally right after he said he was going to self-edit but and i laughed so fucking he's like i'm going to call this guy a butt fucker but i'm going to self-edit and not go too far that was my favorite part of the whole episode the self-editing was not saying the name directly of the brand because therefore if he gets upset like well you called yourself a butt fucker and you, it must be true because now you're you're chirping you know so this is you know just not getting sued not you know the problem <laughs> the problem is that drew has like said enough shit about different people in this industry that like a couple different people think that's oh, yeah. them right now that's the I like it. when he said fucker, there's like 10 people watching the episodes like that motherfucker's talking about me <laughs> <laughs> i will say this ben the first yeah. episode was a bit abstruse it was a bit you know esoteric people we, we talked about that i think this one should be relatable to a lot of people yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's basically five guys just uh, chopping it up. So I had a good time. Nice I, you know, hopefully it's well liked by the, the you know. Whatever. We all we, we already had good re- already had good viewership tonight. So it was definitely engaging enough for people to, to watch. Um, I think that we did take the right course of things being like a little more theoretical in the last episode and really setting the, the ground for this one. I, I love getting into the, into the current affairs. Uh, if you guys like ever see any articles that you want to slate for the next time we get together, please do. Cause this was good. Um, and I like I like the literal, like, this is what happened this month and we're going to weigh in on it. What do you guys really think about it. current events, deep dive sort of thing, right? Fry a big fish like we did. And then like, rapid fire q a at the end user generated in large part but we can we can pursue the you know the tangents yeah. as they come a lot yeah. of people don't get fucking butthurt and pissy about the responses we give their dumb fucking questions at times well, <laughs> we would have to can, you can moderate like you could you know i can moderate pretty well yeah yeah we would have to um one of the things is i will say like the second half of the show, like we lose a decent amount of viewership of people who've watched for an hour. Not everyone watch, watch, wants to watch for over an hour. So we would have to say like at 8.30, we'll start the Q&A so that people can tune in for that. Um, so yeah, I, I would love that. I think that would be sick. I'd love to do more Q&A type stuff. Uh, we would well, because that uh, way like it almost locks in the back half and they know they're sort of waiting for like the gratifying part where they can ask their question. Yeah. <laughs> They have to swim through all this shit. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Swim yeah. Of bullshit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, especially like four, four of us do pretty regular Q and A's here. Uh, Kenton isn't too much on stories anymore, but I, I, I know that individually we all get requests for questions. So it'd be really good to do it together. I'd be very curious where that would take us. Like I thought the turkestron thing was interesting, you know, and like, that I was thankful cool. for it. Yeah. yeah. Cause I get that on my Q and A every here and there. And I, I I'll be, really honest i never researched it it just wasn't an avenue i wanted to go down so i'm glad that you guys were here to help out so let's uh let's put together our ideas for the next one and and, and slate out a bunch of q a well we can figure out the next date awesome sounds great cool well thank you guys for so much for tonight uh and we'll talk soon